Josiah Jacobs here. Uh, I bring on my good friend Devontae today. How you feeling today, Devontae? I'm feeling great. What's up? I'm happy to be here. Hey man, I remember you hit me up a few weeks ago saying you got to get me on the podcast, and, and then we had that great conversation. Yeah. After we after you took my grab pictures, and I was like, oh, this dude, this dude Devontae, like Devontae know his stuff. Like I was like, okay, I didn't I didn't know you was you was as into the into the Black history as you as as you are, bro. Like. I try to be. I feel like you have to be, obviously, like as a black person coming to Howard. Um, but a lot of it was like where I grew up at, on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. It's just like a very rich uh, place with black history. So it's just like a part of your education growing up. Mm, do you feel like the education was, was stressed in your schools growing up or kind of something that, was, that you learned outside of school? It's just there. It's not really pushed or anything, but you have to acknowledge it because it's just like a part of uh, the local area. Um, like for instance in my hometown like there's a section of it that was part of the Underground Railroad so like we took a, a field trip to there when I was in like elementary school but you don't do too much talking about it outside of like oh you know this is a part of the Underground Railroad and that's it um, and then as far as like places where like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass were born on the Eastern Shore of Maryland so you talk about that mm. there's a museum for Harriet Tubman and there's a um, statue for Frederick Douglass and like his uh his birthplace is highlighted and, and things like that, but it's not really incorporated into your education as much as you would think, considering yeah. those are like important figures in American history. It's kind of just seen as it's it's something that that you learn by by seeing almost yeah. instead of actually them teaching you about it in school or whatever. Exactly, and then of course, like if you have elders in your family, they're going to talk to you more about like the the Black history there. Like my grandma, she told me a lot about. A lot of the black history there that might not have gone as far as like slavery and things, but more so like the civil rights area yeah. and, and Jim Crow. So that I was lucky to learn about her perspective from that, um, and just like see how black history has kind of changed and evolved, but not really evolved from my grandmother's generation to mine. Like you know, seventy years later. How do you think it's it's evolved from from the things that she tells you about it to kind of today? Like, what do you think has kind of what is or what does she see? in terms of how things have changed. So she saw when she was a kid, her um, like her parents or her, her mother was like a help for you know wealthy white people in mm-hmm. her community and stuff. And she um, got to see a lot of like, obviously interact with a lot of wealthier white people growing up. So she knew a lot of different wealthy white people in the area. And that, you know, there's perks and negatives to that. And she just saw how, like, interacting with those people could get you certain things, you know, but also seeing, like, the other side of it. Like, she, I remember she told me something. It may have been a cousin of hers that, like, got 
shot because somebody like stole a dog of his like his dog got stolen he went to confront a person about it and like he got shot because of that so wow this was a this somebody that she knew this i believe it's this like a story in the neighborhood yeah i don't want to mix it i think it was like a fat rebel, relative of hers i don't want to mix the story up completely because i don't remember everything but like yeah. that type of stuff is thing those are like things that she would tell me frequently happen because of like the type of environment that it was it's a very rural place very very southern and stuff and people may not think of Maryland as like super super southern today or super um, like conservative and stuff but like the eastern shore of Maryland is really different so I'm not surprised that stuff like that happened Um, another story that she told me is like somebody that she knew in the community that I actually grew up in you know 50 60 years ago like their son had been slapped by a white man and then like their father went up and confronted them and then like that led to a whole argument and stuff. And then the Ku Klux Klan, which at that point, which I had, did not know was in my area until she said it. They still um, are? I don't believe they still are, but okay. like back then, like came through the community, they were looking for them and they were like, you know, we're going to burn everything down if you don't find them. So eventually he like turned himself in. I don't know what else happened to him what? after that, but like that was the type of environment it was. So it was a, you know, a different, different lifestyle back then bro that's deep bro like i think that's um it's important that we understand all aspects of 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 what was really going on especially during the jim Crow era. i feel like people focus too much on slavery in my opinion i think that people don't not i don't say people don't focus too much on slavery but like people kind of forget the 100 years in between 1865 and 1965 especially in the south like when when all the you know all the all the lynchings were happening all this all the stuff where like a white man slaps a black black dude's son and he goes to confront him and he gets shot. Yeah. I I seen like on Instagram like there was a um a post about like a dude who got shot because he like a dude was walking on the wrong side of the sidewalk. Yeah. And he or he talked to a he he said excuse me to a white woman and he got shot. Like yeah. things just like that that are so unnecessary. That, that we look at as unnecessary now, but back then, white people were doing that stuff easily, bro. Easily. Without a second thought. Without Man. a second thought, bro. What you got to say? Um, I was going to say, like, and as far as things have, have evolved, um, it's still, like, a very, very southern, conservative environment. I mean, like, you've had groups of people move in and, and stuff that are more progressive and stuff. But for the most part, my area, like, you know, in the past election, like, 75% of people voted for Donald Trump. So, like, just to give you an idea of, like, w- what the political landscape is and how that affects, like, most people's thoughts. Like, for me, as a, as a black kid growing up there, like, my school was never predominantly white. It was more so, like, 55, uh, 45, I guess. Um, black kids, 45, and then, you know, like, white kids, yeah. 55. And... So there was always like a, a decent mix and stuff, but you did feel like a little different when you interacted with people of older generations. Mm. Like obviously they're gonna like you if you're good at sports, but yeah, if you're not good at sports, they really don't care about you. Um, and even if you are, sometimes like you you won't really be able to escape racism and stuff like that. So it, it's just it's a tricky place. Um, I obviously did very well for myself, and I have I do have a lot of you know, like white friends today that I'm still close with and and stuff but like you know I may be good with their parents and their parents may be nice and accepting but you know you may go back a generation before that and it's like oh these are people who would have probably hated you right might still hate you but are cool about it because you know like their grandkid is a is 
friends with you. So it's it, you just gotta be, keep your head on the swivel in, re, in reality because you never know. That's that's real, bro. How do you think that be, you being okay? How do you think that the racism that still prevails in that county? How do you think it affected the black kids in in the area that that you grew up in, like in high school or whatever? Um, it's like it's tricky because. Like I was saying, like if you're good at sports or something, then they may like you a lot more, and they may feel like that, like you're a part of the family and you, you know, you love and stuff. But I think in 2020, with like George Floyd being killed and you and and just how the world reacted towards that, you saw a lot of relationships unravel because you saw people show their true colors. And like for me personally, I knew a lot of of white people. Um, that I had been friends with growing up, known basically my whole life and stuff. But from seeing how they were reacting towards the George Floyd situation and then just like police killings in general, that made me not want to associate with them anymore. And you know, that led to a lot of arguments like, oh, you know, we've been friends our whole life, you didn't get end our friendship because of this kind of stuff. Yes, because obviously you don't care about my life, you don't care about black people. That's not, I can't be friends with you because sure. you don't care about me. Um, so like, for black kids, that that's something that you had to deal with, and I think you ultimately deal with it regardless of situation, like major media situations like that. You get to a point where, if you you get to college or you see that life is bigger than Caroline County, Maryland, and you realize that a lot of the things that happened in your childhood, growing up during school, you you discover like the the microaggressions, you discover like the blatant racism and stuff that you witnessed in your childhood, and then like you don't want to be around those people anymore. And you feel like uh, a lot of those friends who who you stopped being friends with after the George Floyd situation, um, after the George Floyd murder, how do you think, how, what, do you think they had exhibited those microaggressions in the past, but you just didn't notice it or you kind of ignored it? I or ignored like, it. Or that was like a, that was like a boiling point. The George Floyd was like a boiling point for you. It was a, it was a boiling point. Like, don't get me wrong. I was very, very outspoken and stuff in high school. Yeah. Once I, I learned more about um, like black history and like myself and started valuing like myself. Um, but there's certain, like you can't react to everything and you definitely can't confront racism the way that you would like to because of the consequences that would happen for you as opposed to like a white person. Yeah. Like there have been uh, many a times where somebody said something to me racist that I didn't like and it's like, oh, how do I want to react this? Do I want to punch him in his face? Do I want to, you know, tell a teacher or whatever? Most of the time, if I was to act, react physically, then I'm going to be seen as the aggressor, regardless of what they say to me. And my whole reputation is ruined. Like, my mom would always say, like, you really only get one chance, especially, like, as a black male. If you're a black man, bro, like, if, if you punch somebody, like, that's yeah. your label that they're going to put on you. They, they already put a label on us, even if exactly. you act violently. Just imagine when you actually do. Exactly. So it's like, you really only get one chance. And I was like, if I waste my one chance punching somebody in the face for doing something racist to me, then I'll never get out of here. And, like, it was obviously my goal to get away from that environment and just, like, Caroline County and the Eastern Shore in general. So I just, I had to fight my battles um, career. Like, I had to really pick and choose which battles I wanted to fight. And it's just like, you, you ignore a lot of stuff until you can't. And then you you might may try to, you know, manufacture situations where you can express how mad something made you. But, like, you just got to keep it out of school, I said. Because you get in trouble in there, then they'll, they'll label you as, like, the aggressive black kid for the rest of your life. And... It's really hard to try to move on from that, if, even if you are the one in the right. So that was 
that, I think that's a, a, a big problem that I face and it's like just a continuality of like growing up as a black kid in that area and like being in that school system bro I could that sounds like a, a, a different a different upbringing cause it's like you you in an area that has like a, already has a big legacy of discrimination and slavery and stuff like that which a lot of and, and you, you can see it but it's also like it's Maryland so things are you, you know you got progressive yeah. people in the area but those those remnants is still there and all of the all the stereotypes and all the just how people 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 are still gonna treat you differently exactly because you black I could I could bro that's that's a different experience bro and I kind of wanted to more ask more about the George Floyd situation like what what specific things were the white kids doing that that made you want to stop being friends with, with the ones that you stopped being friends with so it was like it was people obviously blaming said so the biggest thing was like oh you know he was resisting arrest like oh he was resisting arrest. That's why this happened to him. That's why he died. Stuff like that. And then the, my biggest rebuttal to that would be like, is resisting arrest, you know, deserving of death? No. Not for anybody. Nobody. Nobody. And then, you know, afterwards, you know, they, all of them watch Fox News. So it's like, oh, you know, he had drugs. He overdosed. He did this. He did that. It wasn't the police's fault. Nobody. That's obviously been disproven. But, like, regardless, he's the... The white cop sat on his neck for like I don't know ten minutes or something. Yeah. And why would you do that to anybody? At you know, especially as a law enforcement agent, but like just doing that, you're just really trying to exert power over somebody else. Like, but it's four cops or five cops or how many ever, how many ever it was, just like really using extreme excessive force, and that led to a man dying, like over. I don't know, like oh, a or like a lottery, or like a, yeah, like a lottery ticket or a check or something like that. And it's like nobody deserves to die for resisting arrest. Nobody des deserves to die over over you know twenty dollars or a blank check. It'd be different if you know like somebody shooting back at you and stuff like that. Exactly. that he but wasn't that, doing anything. He wasn't doing anything. He was unarmed, and you know that was all. That's obviously been like the the commonality in a lot of these cases where black men are getting black men and black women are being killed by police is like they present no threat but lose their life over racial issues and stuff like that. Somebody had either, it's not even, it's not training. It's not, um, you know, fearing for your life. It's somebody wanting to kill somebody else. And I think that's something that you also hear in school. I heard a lot in school is like people joking around about slavery and stuff like that. You always hear the jokes about not having black people, not having dads, uh, racial jokes about all the things that happened in slavery, um, jokes about police killing black people. And stuff like that so just thinking about all that stuff and how I not ignored it but you don't really realize it and process how serious it is until like a situation like that happens then that is what really led to the the major split because it's like we were arguing about human rights you know we're not arguing about different foods and you know our yeah, favorite yeah. car and stuff this like is that human rights. this is human rights like a person died it's a person humanity. yeah a person was exactly it's mean like a person was murdered unjustly murdered and you think it's okay because they resisted arrest but like just personally i knew people i knew kids that got duis drug drank every single weekend got way drunk and we're of course underage here it's high school it's high school <laughs> i like don't mean i understand it's high school and stuff. Yeah. but you were driving around drunk you know destroying your truck breaking mailboxes and stuff like that but you think there's you know there's no bias or anything you not getting in trouble for that 
but a black man is you know is justified in dying in a case where like a white officer just feels like they can exert that kind of power over him. so like that kind of stuff is what really led to the, the split between and, and friendships because I'm like you don't value me you definitely don't value like random black people so like why would you value me and whatever relationship you make we had, the same excuse yeah it's the same excuse like whatever relationship we had growing up is now done because I know you don't care about me right like if something if something were to actually happen you would you would you wouldn't you would you would look at me the same way yeah and if something happened to me and and, and you and you thought and you cared about me it's only because you actually know me exactly why why can't you look at why can't you look at all black people as this spectrum like I think that they dehumanize us so much yeah. bro like like black men especially bro like they look at us as as if we're like you know super predators yeah like beasts like all that all that stuff bro like you we always have to whenever I was talking about that. I keep talking about this, but like, um, whenever whenever like a black man gets gets killed, one in the news article, there's always like a there's always like a uh, they always try to make sure that they highlight what was good about him, like whether that's his grades, his yeah. school, you, you know, to like make him seem like he wasn't just some other nigga exactly. getting getting killed, like like his humanity was was worth something. Like exactly. it's just unfortunate we have to do that. And it's like, it, uh, for example, if it was me. They would be like, oh, you know, he's a college graduate. Like, he was played sports. He was a nice kid and stuff like that. But I'm like, even if I even if I am all those things, if I wasn't any of those things, would that justify me being killed by police over some bullshit like with George Floyd? No. No. And, like, no way. Like, you shouldn't even have to name all that kind of stuff to justify, you know, to, like, try to justify somebody being a good person and why they didn't deserve death. Exactly. I shouldn't deserve. I shouldn't be killed because, like, I'm a human that you know really wasn't doing anything. It's it, that is something that I, I also noticed, and that's that's another reason why I had to like slowly distance myself from other friends because they might have been more progressive in like, you know, oh, if this happened to you, I would totally, you know, be protesting and stuff like that. Well, right, like, it, I'm. It's cool that you would do that stuff because of me but like I need you to react this way for any anybody you know anybody that's black going through this not just like your friend that you've known for 10 plus years exactly bro and I think it's um it's unfortunate it's unfortunate that you have like media outlets who who kind of who, who promote that uh, that agenda of always trying to push like why he deserved to die and yeah. it's like it's so it's so dishonest because these these a lot of like you know places corporations like Fox News they they only trying to make a buck bro exactly. they they trying to play play on the feelings that those people already have that they already feel like it was they already feel like he deserved to die they'll bro they will come up with the most asinine things to to, to prove why we died bro and I for for me I feel like it comes from from their overall guilt you know they don't. They don't want to seem like they're doing something bad again. Exactly. If those type of friends are always making jokes about slavery and Jim Crow, all that, like they they know the history of this country. They they know what their ancestors did to our ancestors. Exactly. And I think that's an interesting part too, because you know, in a in a state like Maryland that owned a lot of slaves on the Eastern Shore, where it's a large farming area, where obviously you know slaves work. Mm -hmm. You have people who are direct descendants of slave owners, and you have people who are direct descendants of enslaved people. Right there. So it's like. I'm going to school with people whose names are in this book I'm reading about Frederick Douglass as slave owners. One of them is sitting in my class. That's crazy. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't know if he's a direct descendant or stuff, but it's like... But it's just it's it's the a, fact that it's even... Yeah. Thinking about it. And then, like, I mean, if you want to go dig, dig down in history and the world is only so big, like, 
how many people are going to have this specific last name and then also be in this specific area where this book refers to, you know? So that type of stuff. And then for those type of people to be making jokes about this or to, you know, just be extremely racist in general, it's, I know it's not like a, a ignorance thing at that point. It's like you, it's a hate thing. So it, there's no forgivingness. There's no like, you know, we're just going to walk it off and be friends after this. Like, no, nah, you literally hate me. And that's all it is. And that, that's real, bro. Like, you you talking about Frederick Douglass, though, that really makes me think. Because I know, I can't remember if it was my junior, my, my sophomore, junior year of high school when my class read that book. And you was talking about how you read that in high school. You, you guys read it for we class. We read that in middle school. Right? Read it in middle school, okay. Yeah. What what was it like reading that? In, yeah, I read it in, I think, in seventh grade. Yeah, book. seventh grade. What, what was it like reading that book? Knowing that that the history that is talking about is directly applicable to to where you at, like what what was that like? How well, do you think it was taught in a in a in a in a more relatable way, or just kind of just thinking about that? I don't know. Like, I mean, like you have, I think I can give credit to like some of my progressive teachers for even reading stuff like that because like now you see the attack on education and, and you know like reading materials that focus on Black history, but like back then reading stuff like that to your class and, and, you know, just being allowed to learn about it in school, I feel like is a privilege nowadays. Um, but just getting to think about the fact that, like, they're referring to areas in here, like Talbot County, Maryland, for example, is a place that I would travel to almost every day for, like, work and stuff later on in high school. And then knowing that, like, Frederick Douglass was born here and then also enslaved here. And this is the place that I work and I see how, like, the old money has been generated here and how it's still like the term makes a lot of decisions it's still today. there yeah, yeah like, don't go away like. yeah like a, a really big thing um that happened in maryland a couple like two or three years ago is there was a there's a frederick Douglass statue in front of the um courthouse in talbot county in eastern maryland mm-hmm. and then there for the longest time for you know 50 plus years there's also a statue called the talbot boys which is like a confederate memorial statue mm. so my like keep in mind on the right side of the courthouse there's a frederick Douglass statue on the left side there was a confederate that is such a contradiction it's st- such a contradiction right um but people protested and protested and protested that confederate statue for years and years and years and they finally took it down like two years ago but like you think about that kind of stuff you think about the area you read the books you learn the history and then you learn about the fact that like people were probably lynched right in front of his courthouse where they have now tried to put a statue of like a black per- a famous black person but mm-hmm. won't take down the statue of the Confederate Confederacy who fought literally fought to continue slavery. And then you also think about the fact that the Eastern Shore or most parts of the Eastern Shore are not rich by any means and back then was even worse. So like this twelve this small group of twelve Confederate soldiers who were probably dirt poor left their home to go fight in a war for rich slave owners even though they probably couldn't afford to own slaves in exactly. general and it's and it's like people fought so hard to keep that statue i remember they were protesting it one day and i was at work and this guy came in in like a full confederate uniform because he was like protesting it in front of like obviously he's a white man and just like he comes in to buy something i gotta play it cool just like Hi, how are you? What would you like today? And stuff like that. And I'm just like, my man is protesting. It is, you know, is he wants to keep this Confederate statue here, and he is so he feels so strongly about it. He's dressed up in a full Confederate uniform, 
And then you have pe- other people who are so detached from reality <laughs> in this area that they're like, they ask me, a black man, how do you feel about this tall boy statue? What do you think I feel Well, about what do you it? think? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, keep it. That's like history and stuff like that. No, obviously I want to take him down. It's in front of the courthouse. Like, what does that say to any black person walking to the courthouse? It's a Confederate monument right in, in front of the front door. Like, that's just, yeah, I don't know. It, bro, it's such a contradiction, bro. It's really a contradiction. Because cause you talk about all these white people who want, who want, who, who don't want black history to be to be taught in school, but don't want that history to be taught in school. It, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Yeah, bro. it's like you got to pick a side because you have people who you know go out of their way to let you know that their relative fought in the Confederacy and stuff, and they remember their history. And we can't we got to keep these statues up and stuff. But it, then you have another side who's like, oh, don't talk about anything that makes white people uncomfortable at all. So it's like. Pick a side. Pick a side. You don't man. get to have both, and um, you don't get to celebrate white colonialism and slavery and, and trans, you know, like transcontinental slavery and stuff. And but also not want to talk about it because it makes you uncomfortable knowing that your ancestor did stuff like this. Precisely, bro. And even makes me think, bro. But the Confederacy was was a thing for four years, eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five, and. That the fact that his legacy has has allowed has been allowed to live on for so long, just a testament to how much race and, and how much race courses through the, the veins of this country, you know. Yeah, like it's um, it just it it just it don't make sense because even like a lot of a lot of the the whole the all those statues that were made, they they bro, those statues were made like sixty years exactly. after the war ended, bro. A lot of them, like almost none of them, were put up. Immediately after yeah. the, letter, uh, the Civil War, like I remember learning about it and how like the Daughters of Liberty was an organization that like put a lot of these statues up across the South mm-hmm. to like scare Black people and to remind them that like you know you're not wanted here and we are the ones that are really in control here. So it's like it, it's not a remembrance thing. It's not a celebration thing. It is a it's a fear tactic. It's the same as like burning a cross on somebody's lawn mm-hmm. in my opinion so like thinking about that stuff bring all the statues down or worst case scenario put them in a museum that's it like do not have these in front of courthouses government buildings stuff like this because the reason this was put here was to scare black people exactly not you know to remember somebody's great grandfather that fought and died and it's and this thing it's the thing because a lot of those statues when you build a statue for somebody People are supposed to look at that and be inspired. So yeah. a black person might not might not look at that and get inspired, but a white person who who maybe identifies with this is gonna look at that and get inspired, which perpetuates all of the, all of the racist ideals and just the bro. It's like people will say the Confederacy is about like like upholding the Confederate flag is like is about culture and stuff yeah. like that, which is so like bro. Four years, four years, and you lost. The favorite argument of like people on the Eastern Shore is like oh. Confederate, the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery, it was fought over states' rights. And it's like, like states', states rights to do what? Own slaves. Simple as that. Like, bro, and it's the thing, the interesting, about, the interesting thing about race is that all these, all these wealthy white people have convinced a lot of the, a lot of the poor white people that, that your, your race matters so much that, that you should die. You should die. Over, over, over slavery, which you're not even profiting from. Exactly. And, and like, slavery's actually taking away jobs from you because you don't even want to, they, they don't want to pay you to do the work that slaves are doing. Exactly. 
it's like you struggling because this big plantation owner is has free labor and will not hire you. Exactly. And then it's it's so funny because they used to hire a lot of slave owners used to hire a lot of the poor white people to to be overseers on the plantation, yeah. you know, just to kind of create that that type of like that that a higher feeling. It's just like a caste. It's like like a caste system, you know. You want to you want the black people to feel like they're the bottom. You want the white people just to feel high enough so they won't rebel against you. Exactly. So, so they won't actually know. So so they won't actually you know. I mean, they're not gonna think about their situation if they think that you know like black people are the problem every day. It's the same thing today with you know like not only black people but immigrants like. Um, if you can convince like the poorest white man that he's better than the highest black man, then you can rob his pockets. I think Lyndon B. Johnson said that. Yeah. So like that's still true today. And you you have politicians and, and, and you know, business people com- continuing to convince white people, the poorest of poor white people, that they are not only better than uh black people and other people of color, but they are also black people and people of color also to blame for all their problems exactly bro which is which is so it's, it kind of points out to the to the problems of, of capitalism and how it's used how it's been used by by the by the higher by the wealthiest americans to to manipulate all the lower classes and into fighting over, over over trivial things you know because if in in a perfect world like we, we would have we would have black people and those poor white people working together to to bring down that system and make things a lot more fair, but you know, but when you when you when you think of like labor movements and stuff like that in the nineteen forties and fifties and sixties, like black that was a time when, when black people was really kind of they they was really trying to get with with the unions. You had A. Philip Randolph and people like that who were leading that movement. You know that they had they had the um, a million man march yeah. in, in the early nineteen forties, I think, like like yeah, like the late nineteen thirties, but. Stuff like that. There were newspapers in the South that a lot, bro. These congressmen, they did not want that, bro. They they was trying to make sure that 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 the, that the blacks and the whites didn't work together because that would throw off their whole plan. Yeah, it, throws, it throws off everything. Cause like think about it, for as long as civilization has been around, there have always been poor people. Mm-hmm. But you know, like this race thing, and I guess like in the whole game of humanity and society is is pretty new. As far as like you know, white versus yeah, black. Yeah, it's only like it's only like five hundred years exactly. old. Exactly. So like, if you, if somebody's able to help people understand that race really doesn't make any sense, and you should be like focusing on your class, and like you should have solidarity between like your class and understand that like you know, the poor white, the poor black person over there is not the blame for your problems as a poor white person, like you should be looking up and know that like your problems are being caused by the person who's robbing both of you then that's when you can really make some changes but obviously like the goal is to not let people realize that exactly and one of the hardest things about trying to get people to understand that is because there isn't really if you're poor there's not really a lot of proximity to wealth so, no so you don't especially if, if you're a poor white person you know you don't really see a lot of that a lot of the, the wealthy white people who are who are really stealing from you, and yeah. you also don't see them stealing from you. No. It's it's not like it's not as overt as somebody like robbing a bank or robbing a store or something like that. It's you, you're not seeing the, the money he's taking out of your pocket, how much he's exploiting you, how exactly. much yo your labor is actually worth. You know, it's um, it's 
It's, it's, it's a sick game, man. It's a sick game. It really is. It really is. And I mean, like you said, you really, I, I think for me, I really wasn't exposed to like the proximity of wealth, well, like wealthy white people until I was like in high school. And like I, like I said earlier, I, I started work, working in Talbot County, which is like one of the wealthiest counties in America. I never, how, how far is that from you? Um, for me, that's like 11 minutes, 11 minute drive. Okay. Um, from here in D.C., probably like an hour, um, maybe an hour, 15 minutes. But like Tulsa County is one of the wealthiest counties in America. And I never really put that together until I got older and started seeing like these people, you know, what cars they were driving, the houses they were living in, the, kind of, uh, the type of money they were spending on like extracurricular activities and just fun. I think that's a, r- a really good measure of how wealthy somebody is, like the amount of money they can waste. So seeing that and seeing that like, um, these people, a lot of these people generated their wealth through like generations and generations of systems um, and like family businesses and stuff that they've had um, for like hundreds of years on the eastern shore it's like okay well you the current person living today may think that like your success is based off of your hard work but would your father say that would your grandfather or, you know mother say that would your grandfather or grandmother say that you know your great-grandfather person who may at this point have done some dirty things to mm-hmm. color people in their in their life to get to the success that they're at today and it's I don't, I don't think a lot of people acknowledge that people won't acknowledge the money that they you know that their family probably has from owning slaves or you know exploiting black people um, after slavery ended for like you know with sharecropping and stuff that that is a conversation that needs to be had and needs to be accepted but probably won't be because then you you realize that i got rich off of robbing somebody blind and making somebody work for free exactly bro because i'm I'm gonna look this up right now but slaves were worth like over a trillion dollars yeah and just imagine that imagine that bro a trillion dollars and they're making money off of them for they don't have to pay them anything no they don't have to pay them anything and they're like, yeah, if you want to get deeper into it, like the initial investment of like, oh, you build the, the cabins they live in, you give them one shirt, one pair of pants a year, um, you know, you feed them the scraps of what your farmer's making, you work them 12 hours a day, if not more, the profits, the profit margin is insane. Nothing like you see today with like, you know, minimum labor laws and stuff like that. So just think about how much wealth these people really had and how... After the Civil War, these slave owners were compensated for losing their <laughs> slaves. It wasn't like, oh, you know, y'all don't get any money. You got to start over again. Money was given right back to these people who literally owned other people and made them work for free. They were compensated for their loss and allowed to basically keep doing the same thing. Because they paid them, you know, pocket change afterwards with sharecropping. Or they just said that, you know you a black person had to keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and would never be able to work themselves out of the debt that they had accrued with you know a white a, a wealthy white plantation owner so exactly. it's like there was no cutoff of this wealth that you accumulated it continued to grow and then it transformed through like the industrial revolution and you know with the and like world war one and world war two and stuff like that it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and it has continued today it's it's it never stopped the exploitation from slavery never stopped. It just 
changed it's, a little it's, bit. It's just changed and uh, this book I've been reading, uh, Cast Class and Race by Oliver Cox, like talking about black people have always our primary purpose in this country has been for labor. Yeah. Prime primary, primary from from slavery to even to through Jim Crow through now, which which is why I mean it's something else that I could add to after slavery. They started putting us in jails for yeah. labor, even when they couldn't make as much money off of us. They put us in jail. You know, Thirteenth Amendment is a clause in there that well, you, we can't enslave you unless you're in jail. Unless you commit a crime. So, yeah, bro, there is even now, bro, the prison industrial complex, bro. They got millions of black men in there doing all types of labor for free bro yeah that we don't even really be knowing about that's like a hidden aspect of society that we don't even really talk about bro and it's funny because i had a conversation about this like i, I play tennis and one of the guys um i was talking to he had no idea about the prison industrial complex bro. and like how it's the fact that you know they keep putting so many black people in jail because you can put them in jail and pay them pennies and do and outsource their labor to companies or you know governments and stuff like that and there's no problem like nobody argues against, well people argue against it obviously but there's nothing you can really do about it because the first thing they say is well these men committed a crime and we can do whatever we want with them once they're in jail and, and you have politicians who could change those laws and change that type of stuff they're getting money from the complex too they get money from it so they're not going to say anything I mean like obviously political corruption is like arguably the biggest problem in America right now but I mean you have people that's, that, that's fact yeah. that's, that's real like, you have people who are not going to say anything because their pockets are being lined. Well. Bro, I was talking, in another podcast I recorded, I was talking to my homie about how do how do you think that these politicians go down that path of political corruption or just just corruption, period? I think you get ex- you, you get exploited early. Because I think you don't get, you don't get exploited in, you know, small local government politics. Like, you know, you if you work your way up there, you work your way up from working at like in your, your your county say then you become say like a state representative or a state senator and I think that's when it starts to begin but it's not going to get too crazy you become like a governor or something that's when it's going to pick up mm-hmm. you know you become a senator or a US senator or a US representative I can't even imagine what, what kind of dirt people are digging up on you to get you to do whatever they want or not even dirt that they're digging up on you threats that may be made or you know the type of money that they're just gonna throw at you be like you know if you make this decision we'll give you a million dollars and for somebody who may have never experienced that kind of money is only in politics that maybe do good the money may really just draw you and change the whole outlook on what you're here to do and like I think that's like the dangerous part of, of, of greed and money is like you can a lot of people I feel like go into politics with a great mentality and they really want to do good that money is just it will draw you away and if it's not money then it probably is like actual threats and, and things like that bro I think that's that stuff is so um, it's so sad because the American public puts so much faith into these politicians who do not have their best interests yeah, at, at, at all it. bro like yeah, a lot of these southern states bro they, they be some, like Mitch McConnell bro in Kentucky Kentucky is like one of the poorest states in the in the country bro and He's been he's been over he's been the the, the senator, in, in the senator for, for, for decades for for decades, bro. But if if you can use the 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 vehicle of race to to stay in power, it just shows how much how much it is in the fabric of the people in this country, bro. This, but then you, I don't know. For me, and you you get into the question of like, well, 
dang, these people have stayed poor for 30, 40 years off of the same senator who has continued to get richer and richer and richer. Mm-hmm. And they refuse to let to vote for a change. You know, outside of voter restrictions and everything that's being that's being done to attack voting rights right now, do like some of these poor white people that continue to elect these officials, do they like deserve it? And I know that may be like controversial, but it's like you continuously choose race over your own situation. You are actively getting worse. Actively, you don't care. Actively getting worse. Just because you don't want to see a black person in office or somebody more progressive in office that will, you know, do their best to make your life better. It may they may not be able to flip everything around in your lifetime, but it's the goal that they're trying to help you get out of your situation instead of putting you deeper in it. Precisely, bro. And it's um it makes me it's it's interesting because a lot of these people, a lot of these racist people, they have never seen or come in contact with a black person before. Oh. They 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 might have seen just one they usually have never even they never encountered a group of a group of black people period bro no. and they have like a, a, a you know a creative a creative stereotype in their head of what like most black people are and that's you know created by media and you know, politicians that they vote in and they think all black people are like that so when it comes time to vote somebody in who may not be progressive I mean who may be progressive and who may have policies that will affect every single aspect of their life and make it you know, ten times better on day one. If they're black, they won't do it. It doesn't matter, bro. And it's just, it's crazy because when you think of how they don't see black people, it's it's so hard to kind of, because when you when you experience that, when you actually see like another another race and you see that these people aren't that aren't those stereotypes that that have been portrayed to you in the media and stuff like that, you see that you know these these people are you know they're, they're humans too, and it's. It's been very strategic by the United States and to keep black people as only like twelve to fourteen percent of the population yeah. since the inception of this country. It's like we've been in this country too long. Like there was a point to where there was more black people in the South than the white people. Yeah. Like more more slaves. Exactly. And it's like it's um it's it's so interesting how the pop- how the black population isn't really growing like that. They always try to keep that at a at a steady rate. Just just enough so people don't really want to wake up or, or the institution doesn't change. I mean, that's, like, obviously been a structure attack, you know, with, like, um, laws to keep, like, black fathers out of the household in order for, like, a, a black mother to receive, like, government assistance and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Just, like, all the encouragement to not only pick apart the black family, but just keep black people from having kids in general. And don't get me wrong, like, I'm definitely for, like, revolution. I mean, for, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, reproductive rights and stuff like that but in terms of like family building and uh, like the stuff that comes after having a child like all that stuff is is really structured to keep people from like not having strong successful families that can go on to like build wealth and stuff and like wealth is obviously going to allow people to have more kids if they want and to to better their own situations and the situations of their like surrounding family members and stuff like that so it's it's just like it's a really structured attack. I mean, think about how many people you may know who only have one parent mm-hmm. or, you know, may have a parent that's incarcerated or something like that. Yeah. Like, it's a very common thing. Very common. And in the black community. And it's not, at that point, it's so common that it's not just a, you know, like a... It's not just a coincidence. It's not a coincidence, exactly. It's, um, it makes me think just about the whole family topic. I mean, 
when you think about movements like the civil rights movement and in in these societies that enable that to happen, the the black society that enable that to happen, we have to take into account that a lot of that stuff was able to happen because of strong family units. Yeah, those strong family units helped. Well, you know, you have all those families going to church together, you know, congregating together, being in communities together, having respect for each other's families and stuff like that. That is what actually builds and sustains movements to happen, bro. And it's interesting because right after the civil rights movement had happened, that's when they started, they, they really started dismantling the black family, you know. there A lot of people don't know this, but there was a point where black, fam- there was more black family, there was more black people married than white people married. And, and, the, and the percentage dropped off like crazy in, in like 1970. Yeah. That, that's when it started. You know, when you add all the forces of mass incarceration. Another thing, deindustrialization. That, when when a lot of yeah, the factories, that's a, yeah, that's when, when the factories started going away to to, to Africa and, and Asia and stuff like that, they they literally gutted middle class jobs away from a lot of black people who didn't who couldn't afford to even go to college. Exactly. So so like that that's a whole that's a whole point that's a whole stream a whole stream of people who was depending on that income. And and something else else I was gonna say is that white people were impacted by deindustrialization too. And in those those rich corporations, the people who are stealing from them again, they don't hold them accountable. No. And you would think that they would the uh, for white people, if, at least, you would think they would have fought more to keep those jobs here and would be more critical of those companies today and in the moment, you know, decades ago, because they were able to go out and get these jobs long before black people were allowed to. Like, mm-hmm. black people were really not allowed to get, like, these, you know, middle-class paying um, factory jobs and stuff like that, like, decades after what they were available to white people. Right, um, you decades know, like after. During, during and after the Industrial Revolution. So you would have thought that, like, when they started shipping jobs overseas, that there would be more of an uproar and, like, oh, you know, we're not going to allow this and we're going to stand with, you know, like, our black brothers and sisters who have also, you know, been able to benefit from this. But that's, like, another thing of you put a race over your own situation. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to see black people benefiting from this, so I will suffer myself. <laughs> it's, it's lunacy, bro. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. And... I mean, like, for me personally, like, my, neither of my grandparents graduated from high school, and they both went out and got factory jobs in, like, the, uh, I imagine, like, the 60s and 70s and yeah. stuff like that. And that's where they worked for decades. And they were able to build a, you know, nice, just, like, lower to regular, like, middle-tier, middle-class life for themselves and stuff. Um, but it's like, that's what they did. But then when they shift those jobs away, and obviously they become harder to get, and then you also take out of a lot of schools like the like trade classes and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that other options for people outside of college which has become ridiculously expensive then you are targeting like black people in general and also like lower class people in general so it is like all, all this stuff is Fact. is targeted well this is why i mean you can add on to that why why black people have the most student loan debt yeah because i mean we've always been kind of sold on college being a way that we can that we can the way that you can change your life change your life and, and, and get that upward mobility but now i mean bro before the civil rights movement a lot of colleges were they they were in california the colleges were free say, yeah and then and ronald if, reagan if, came if, in. bro bro ronald reagan bro like, he's the devil like literally the devil like i, I advise you guys to watch Little Bill's it's, it's a YouTube channel Little Bill watch, watch this video about Ronald Reagan being the devil watch that you, it will really make a lot of things make sense in your head and something I didn't also get to mention was the crack epidemic yeah which is which which coincided with deindustrialization 
just created a, a, a quote unquote perfect storm of, of just of just black just black economic despair, bro. Because when you have all these jobs going away, and then you're and then you're dumping crack into the community, exactly. You you there's there's gonna be people who's gonna sell it so they can make money, and there's gonna be people who's gonna want to use it because they're stressed because they ain't got no job and they can't take it and exactly. they can't take care of their family. And I mean, you also the people who are selling it also stressed because maybe they had a job that they now lost because of deindustrialization, and they have to provide for their family. So like. If drug selling drugs is the only option to feed your kids, what are you gonna do? Nine point nine people are gonna sell drugs. Honestly. Oh, exactly. And it's like people uh Keyshawn made this so made a great point this about this the other day. Like these like where where people think these these guns and, and crack came from? Like black people not flying to Panama and South America no. to bring that stuff. Like they're where not is it making coming them. from? I mean they, like they're not making them. It I, it's it's targeted. I mean it's all that stuff is specific. It's it's too, too connected, too precise, and too you know planned for it to just be like a coincidence. Exactly, bro. Even when you got, even the whole southern strategy, like we was talking about, how the how they've kind of manipulated white people into thinking that race is their biggest factor because these white people have such a fear of of, of this country not being quote unquote theirs anymore. And just like imagine being a white person in the south being scared of black people when like as a black person 50 years ago you could walk down the street and just be lynched for walking down the street just for walking down the street for walking down the street like you don't even have to do a single thing they could run into your house pull you and your whole family out set you on fire tie you hang you up and kill you and then their kids would be there laughing like it's a circus like a circus bro like it's a circus like like selling their body parts in stores like, like it's candy like it's candy you treating you like you are a deer and they're hunting you and they want to you know mount you up on a wall as a trophy and i mean i just me personally i just don't understand this fear that white people have of black people i know it's manufactured but let's be realistic here it wasn't white it wasn't black people going out walking into random white people's homes and killing them for fun it was the other way around and it wasn't, and it doesn't doesn't stop there. It, it it's much more gruesome and targeted and and dangerous and you know, and and stuff like that. So like this this fear that they have, you know, I really need to look in because my mother told me well I was never allowed to just go over random white people's houses as a kid. I was never allowed to you know just be around our parents and be the only black kid in a situation like yeah. that because think about what could happen. That that fear of white people is is ingrained in white and black people. It was in my grandmother, it was in her grandparents, it was in her you know her parents, it was in my mom, and it's in me. I'm I still feel weird when I drive through my own on the eastern shore sometimes, and I grew up there. It should I should not be scared of my own hometown. Generational trauma after sunset after sunset, you know, like that type of stuff should not happen. But that's going to be the feeling of any black person in America, really, because of all the history of, of you know, killings and, and lynching and stuff like that. So, you know, I just don't I really don't I truly don't understand the fear. And then like we talked about earlier, it's like you either you have some people, white people who fear black people entirely and you have some who will boast about being conquerors of the world and, and enslaving others and, and and building up this empire of whiteness. 
It's like, you, and then you run into both of those kinds of people, and it's like you need to pick pick a side. Either, either everybody's gonna be scared of black people, or everybody is gonna, you know, look down upon them because they feel like they conquered the whole world. Exactly, bro. Um, yeah, you're talking about Maryland again. Made me think. Did your did, did your family stay in Maryland after slavery? Were they were they in that area during slavery or no? I mean, I I think so. I don't know how far it goes back. To be honest, like in my grandma's house, we have a. Well, I believe her grandfather, her great grandfather, he's in a, a military uniform. It's a really old black and white picture. Um, so I imagine it's probably for real. Yeah, I'll send you a picture one day. Well, yeah, you gotta um, you gotta send me that, bro. It's like uh, I imagine it. It was either from like the Civil War or something like that. I would um, love to see that picture. I think if I looked at the uniform, I might, I might be able to tell which, yeah. which war it was. Because I don't, I personally don't know. But I mean, like my grandmother, she grew up in Talbot County and was born and grew up in Talbot County, and I think it had been that way for a while. And a lot of my family has been there for a while. And I think like you, once you you know, land somewhere, you usually just stay there. And I think because of most of my family is from there, that's probably where they um, really originated from. So, like, slavery definitely, definitely goes back. I mean, like, my, my great-grandfather was born in 18-something, because like, he was much older than my mm-hmm. great-grandmother. So, like, it's there. You it, know, the roots are there. It's, it's crazy because uh, I, I like to say this a lot in my life when I talk about this type of stuff with people. Slavery was only about like six, seven generations away. That's like seven people. Yeah. If, if you go down the line of seven people, there's a lot of the, tra- the traumas and ills that we go through. It's it's e- like if you play a game of telephone, that, that message, if, if it's only seven people, it's probably still going to be the same message. Exactly. And we have, to, um, we have to think about that when we think about these problems. Like slavery was only ended like 100, 160, 158 years ago. Yeah. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't been that long. And compared to how long it was going on for over 250 years. So the ills that we face and the, and the problems that we have as black people and, and just the problems in America, period, it's going to take a long time for those for those ills to, to be erased. And I, it makes me think about um, my my great, great, great grandfather. He was from uh, he was from Virginia. And it, it kind of makes me wonder if, if he was on if he if he was in the same plantation as your family, bro, because Maybe. he bro, because he um. When he was twelve, like I think in eighteen seventy, he 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 ran away from his father. He's he told his father, um, he told his father, I'm going to the train station. Uh, and his father, him and the father got in an argument. He said, "We're going to the train station. If I'm going to the train station, if you don't come get me by twelve midnight, I'm taking the train." And his father never came, so he left Virginia, and I presume he went down south because that's where my family is from. My family from uh, Texas, yeah, Texas and Arkansas, so. It's um, it's interesting. I always thought it was interesting coming back to Howard, kind of coming back to the area where some of my family was, bro. But these stories go deep, bro. They really do. They really go deep. Um, and like I think, like you said, like just a moment ago, that it's like gonna take time to fix all these problems. Now, I think politically, it shouldn't take this much time. It's, and I think, you, and like you really see how corrupt things are, and just not even just corrupt. It's like a lot of racist people that keep getting promoted to maintain systems of oppression because like we were talking about earlier how slave owners were compensated after the civil war for you know they're losing their slaves and only to you know basically keep the same workforce and get money back as well black people received no compensation there was no 40 acres and a mule there was no nothing and they went back into situations that were just as bad 
if not arguably worse, mm-hmm. and had to just build from that. And then when they started building, and you know, black people are a hard working group of people that are, you know, will be able to overcome anything that they that they're faced with, you are attacked and your your work is destroyed by white people angry white people who think you're, you know, getting too powerful. And like you see that time and time again through history, obviously with like Tulsa that's like the probably the most well known example mm-hmm. of black people who were leaving white people alone, did their own thing, and were doing it well, really well. And what happened? They destroyed it. And then, you know, it happened all over the country. So it's really amazing how black people were enslaved for two hundred and fifty years and then after slavery were put in a very, very similar situation that arguably was worse than what they were in before with nothing nothing and then were no able support. no support no support from the government no support from you know obviously their former enslavers and stuff and were able to be successful and build up strong communities just to have them destroyed once again because like oh you know y'all shouldn't be anything more than just their slaves Bro. so like that I think that's, that speaks to how if politics did what it was supposed to do. You really could pull people out of poverty. You could fix a lot of things that are wrong in this country, especially in the black community. But that'll never happen because you really do have like racist people running things. Racist people running things. You got corrupt people running things who don't yeah, care about the don't people care. at the bottom at all, who try to act like they care. And it even makes me think about how when we was talking about those Confederate statues being being erected like in the 1910s and 20s, that's that was a time period in which black people were starting to really develop those communities. A lot yeah. of those all black towns, like when I was talking to Dean, he said like Oklahoma had like over a hundred all black, all black communities and stuff like that. Just in Oklahoma, bro. Yeah, and like it was spread throughout the South. A lot of these all black communities that 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 were that had that were thriving, bro. And then white people couldn't stand they that, couldn't bro. Stand it, they couldn't bro. stand they it, bro. Because because you see, you was you you literally had seen these people in slavery. You had seen them get out of slavery and to see them start building. It's like damn. And I think it was probably like a jealousy Hell thing. Hell yeah, Because, was. like, you see, if you're a poor white person and you've been poor since slavery ended and you see that these black people who had nothing and who were former slaves have now built up a successful, you know, economic community, it probably pissed them off. But I'm like, that That just goes to show, like, black people just wanted to be left alone. They wanted, they didn't ask for, you know, to be financially supported for the rest of their lives and stuff like that. They were just like, give us something that allows us to be self-sufficient. Just leave, leave us, us alone. alone. Leave us alone. Let us build. And they couldn't even do that. They couldn't give us that. And then once we were still able to become self-sufficient after being, you know, held down again, they tore it down. They tore what we built down. Like, bro, they had, they had legit, they had planes flying over yeah. Tulsa, bro. Bombing. That's actually crazy. Like bro. the just to think about that kind of like the type of evil mentality you have to have to do something like that. Like, dude, this is in the nineteen nineteen twenties, bro. Like planes had just been invented twenty years ago, bro. Yeah. It's not like people had the economic means to just get a plane and start flying it, bro. But to to fly planes over Tulsa and bomb it and kill over three hundred people, bro. Like it's it's for no reason at all. For no reason, bro. I, I'm about how many people were killed? I'm about to look this up right now. How many people were killed in Tulsa, bro? It's very, I mean, like, that's the kind of stuff that makes me angry because you, like, as black people today, obviously, 
were very criticized in media and um, you know just like in general that were that people say we're lazy or we don't like to work hard we can't build anything and we're destructive and stuff like that but you know all those things only started when we stopped working for free because exactly. throughout his, you can look at any point in time through history black people have been able to come together and build and be successful but at the after building and being successful there is always always been a group of like angry white angry racist white people who have said that y'all can't do that and they destroy whatever everything that we built like it's you really to start over it's so jealous it's jealousy bro like they they it's just it's it's really infuriating bro because i know that like could you imagine how like what what black america would look like today if they didn't if they didn't build they didn't destroy those those towns if we didn't have to start over every couple of decades we have to start over every time yeah like that that's our generational wealth right there that's that's literally generational wealth right there bro it's like that's like four or five generations back bro that's that's where you start building it at bro even when you talk about i talked about this the other day um like them, them building highways through the black communities bro stuff like that like destroying black community centers black black like thriving black uh, centers in, in urban in urban areas, bro. Building highways through them, destroying all of it, all the all the money that was lost. And that's how you see like that is more than just individual, you know, pocketed groups of racist people. It's like a systematic thing, it's like systematic targeting of this of keeping black people as like a lower tier economic class. It's like oh, okay, we can't just go into town and kill all of y'all like we did fifty years ago, but now we have power in our government so we're gonna you know put our nice new highway through your community and take all your land with eminent domain not give you nearly what it's worth and then make you start all over again somewhere else that is not an economic center and it's gonna make your life actively worse for you and your kids like bro that's literally what happened to my uh my great-grandmother bro i I thought i said this during the podcast before like she she had um she had a house in the Fillmore Dishes in San Francisco, which used to be a thriving black area. Like, mm. really, it was Harlem of the West, bro. Thriving jazz scene. It don't look like it don't look nothing like that anymore, bro. It's kind of just like, just like a lot of a lot of poverty, bro. It's just not as lit as it used to be, bro. But yeah. my my grandma grew up in the area, so she always talks about when she came to graduation. She was like, "Oh, this this looks just like how Fillmore used to look." But my my great grandmother, her house had to be it was destroyed, eminent domain. Yeah, built built a highway through it. Um, then, then they relocated her to a completely different part of San Francisco. Luckily, we still have that house today. But just the fact that 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 house that that got destroyed, that land is worth way more than exactly. the house we got now, bro. It's worth like it would be worth like five, six, seven million today. It's that's the area that the yeah. area that area houses in there is crazy, bro. And that's generational wealth right there. Generational wealth taken, taken, bro. And when I was looking this up, it said three hundred people died. Over eight hundred people were injured in the Tulsa massacre, bro. Like, that is crazy, bro. Just destroyed it all. And a lot of people don't don't know this, but it was actually rebuilt. Um, Tulsa was uh, rebuilt. Like, a, it, became, it became even better than it was before. But just the fact that we had to start over. Start over. Imagine, yeah. imagine, bro, imagine if they didn't have to rebuild, bro. Imagine what they could have did. Imagine what that would have looked like. It's like, it's just crazy to think about. It, it really is. And then, you know, you have people that are like, why are you stop imagining? Stop imagining. Stop imagining. It's like no, what? <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that we we're talking about. If we didn't have to keep rebuilding, then a lot of the problems that we face today would not be a problem. 
Precisely, bro. And it, it even makes me mad something you talked about earlier, how they always call black people lazy, bro. That stuff is infuriating because when you look at any black family, we be the most hardest working people ever, bro. Like, have all the shifts, all the jobs that we have, that we be having to work that are, that our grandparents and parents had to work just to get us to schools like Howard and stuff like that, bro. I really hate, this is a personal thing. I hate when non-black, non-white people call black people lazy. Oh, yeah. Like, other groups yeah, of color yeah, yeah. and stuff because... If if not for black people, you know, protesting and working hard oh, as they man. did to you know end slavery, to end Jim Crow, to fight for civil rights and stuff like that, there would be no other groups of people here. They wouldn't even be here. Yeah, like at all, outside of you know like regular Native Americans and you know other white people. Like that's it. But this country pretty much used to be black and white. Bro. Black. It used to be black and white because they almost eradicated Native Americans. Mm-hmm. So like. All the diversity I have today is literally due to black people working hard to fight for rights to allow other groups of people to come here and, and thrive. So it's like this disconnect that we have and this hatred of, of, of black people from other pe- groups of color and this desire to be closer to whiteness is just like, let's take a look in the mirror and look at history. None of this stuff that you have accomplished would ever been possible if black people didn't suffer and fight and organize to get these rights that you have today. Literally, bro, because before 1964, none of those groups were able to come here. Because, no. of, because of the legislation that was passed as a result of the Civil Rights Act, those groups were now able to come here. Like, And, and people don't really know this, but a lot of the immigrants that are able to come here, the United States kind of picked which ones could come. It's not, yeah. it's not like you had the the worst uh, economically uh, like it's not like you had the the lower class of people coming to America it was all the, it was all the higher class of people so they already they had already had these habits exactly uh, like they had already had the habits of you know like working hard and, and accruing and, and like just they had skills that they could already work here for bro. When, when black people systemically we haven't had we haven't learned those those same skills when, you know when you when you put in drugs and stuff like that in the community you already destroying it bro they like they, they was giving indians liquor stores when they first came here bro yeah. already giving them an immediate vehicle for income exactly i mean it's like you don't have the the chains and stuff on you that black people have had and still have today in terms of like generating wealth for yourself so you can be successful they'll give you you know a loan to get a store they'll give you a loan to start a business or something like that Whereas, like, a black person who may have grew up here and been born here, they're not going to give you that. Exactly, bro. And it's it's another, when you talk about those, like, other, like, non-white groups criticizing us, it's just another tool to kind of keep the existing social order yeah. going, you know. Like, this, it, it don't it don't work if black people aren't at the bottom. No. And, like, it, I really made that point because I keep seeing a thing on Twitter about the, um, the kid in, in California who, like, blamed affirmative action for not getting into, um, like, a couple of schools. Um, despite having like perfect SAT scores and stuff like that, and I'm like, first of all, this is common knowledge. I felt like maybe it's not so common that affirmative action benefits white women more than any other group. It does, and also like Cal- civil rights movement benefited white women the most. Yeah, and then also like California got rid of affirmative action like a minute ago. So like that type of stuff, that lack of research and that level of ignorance is just coming from non-white groups. Is just so dumb. That's all I can really say about it. It's just like really, really dumb because you are blaming black people who really make up a fraction of these other percentages at these Ivy League schools for not getting a spot when the real problem 
everybody knows is like legacy admissions and stuff like that like rich people who are who already are rich and then went there and were able to send their now rich kids to the same school too despite with whatever their test scores or whatever they've done it don't it don't matter like, but no, it's just right. so easy in this country to put the blame on black people for everything and that, that's that's how that's how the engine keeps going. That's how bro. the engine keeps going. It's how bro, like a lot of those same conservative talking points and like, the ones we see today, they've been doing that stuff like, since slavery that, ended, exactly. bro. Like it's been the same stuff. It's like the same stuff calling, repeated. Calling black repeated. people lazy, you're saying saying they taking away jobs. Yeah. Like it's been it's been it's the same playbook, bro. And you know it's true because like if you ask your grandparents or your great grandparents if you have them, like, oh, what did they say about black people when you were a kid? They're gonna say the same thing they saying now. It's the same thing, bro. What other group of people have to deal with that? No, none. And, bro, and it's unfortunate because, like, those other groups will, will come here and they don't know the history no. of, of, of America. They, they they just come here and, you know, they, they you know, they want to assimilate and survive. And oftentimes what they want to assimilate to is more is more white culture. They yeah. don't, don't want to be bothered with, with black people. It's like the whole, it's the whole thing of, like, all right, white people look at black people as, like, something that you... It's just an example for them is something they don't want to be. It makes them feel superior, yeah. you know. And then these these other groups kind of they come here and we're like, okay, who do we not want to be like? We don't want to be like black people. Exactly. So we're gonna trash them. We're gonna disparage them without without understanding why these black people are in the situation that they're in. And then like it's it's constantly getting worse because like with the attack on the education system and removing um, certain parts of black history from from school like the school system. The more people coming over here are learning less and less about like America's history and how Black history is intertwined with American history. So I, I honestly feel like the relationship may just get worse. But you know, thankfully, in a, in a, the age of media that we're living in, like you can learn a lot more on the internet and on your own. But even then, social media and, and stuff like that is being targeted. So you just got to be careful, and you really have to do your own research to to not remain ignorant and be able to like actually. Um, like look at people the correct way in terms of like not blaming black people for all your freaking problems. Yeah, bro, because it's a it's a common thing, bro. Like you see a lot of that. I don't even want to call it white black. I don't even want to call it white backlash anymore. I just call it backlash period. Because in San Francisco, it's been like a real surge in crime. You know, like people can't pay for nothing, bro. People yeah. are desperate on the streets, bro. And, and and obviously structurally, systemically, a lot of the crimes are gonna be are gonna be perpetrated by black people. So a lot of like a lot of Asian groups will uh, they'll they'll attribute this uh, you know it's something that I've thought is very interesting the whole stop Asian hate I I do think it's wrong that Asian people have been getting killed and stuff like that especially in streets like San Francisco and the Bay Area but I want I want Asian people to understand that this is this hate this why you're getting killed is not because Black people hate you yeah that that's not why they're they're just desperate and if anything. Those black people are getting killed. Black, black, black people are killing black people more than, than they're killing Asian people, bro. Yeah. Like, you guys aren't you guys aren't the target. They're they're just they're just trying to get somebody who they might perceive as vulnerable and trying to and trying to get money. Whether and I'm not, I'm not saying that's right, but it's important to understand why it's happening so we can develop adequate solutions to actually solving these issues instead of just saying lock them up and then and then creating the same cycle of 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 you know like. Whoever, whoever these kids in, they was in jail. Now they come back on the streets. They can't get a job because they got a felony. Exactly. So they have to commit crime again. Crime. It's the same shit, bro. And then, I mean, the thing is, like, poor people, no matter their color, are really going to do, like, the same thing. Because if you can't afford to eat, you can't afford to buy anything that's going to sustain you. 
what are you gonna do? Commit a crime to get the things that you need. Exactly. And I mean, then you can get into the conversation of like, our country doesn't address basic needs of people and stuff like that. But then that's not a black issue. That's not a well. That's not an issue that black people are responsible for. That is a you know a government problem that's not being addressed. So like, don't blame black people for for this, or just think that all black people, all poor black people, are like these evil, despicable creatures that only know how to commit crime and stuff like that. If you were in that situation, that economic situation, you would almost certainly do the same thing you to know, survive. Exactly, and not even just the economic situation, but the overall life situation. You know, like these people, they don't even have. A lot of them don't even have families to go back to, yeah. right? And they, they wasn't raised from, and they didn't have a proper guidance from like a father or something like that. A lot of them don't, they don't have that strong, stable family culture growing up. So they're not taught how to how to be the person that they need to be in the society, bro. And a lot of that comes down to systemic issues. And I just want to clarify that when I said that black, that, that I, I don't, I just want to clarify that when I said that Asian hate isn't, Real, I meant for from the standpoint of like black people. I definitely do think there's a lot of xenophobia that a lot of white people have in this country towards Asians because of COVID and everything. But in the instance of black people, like in in a lot of those crimes happening, like it's it's deeper than just what a lot of people perceive as hate. Yeah, it's, it's structural and, and economic. Exactly. Like, I don't think people are being attacked. Asian people are being attacked because like they from black people because like they hate Asian people. It's like they see you as somebody who probably is. Uh, a person that they can get something from because you look like you're in a better economic situation than they are. So, like, and that that's not right in any way. Right. I'm, I'm not saying that, but it's just like that's how people are gonna look at people. I mean, if I was a, I mean, I would probably be, you know, open to getting robbed or attacked or something if I was driving around San Francisco or a wealthy a wealthy area, and you know, a really fancy car, flashing money and stuff too. So like, it, it's just. It's really how you look because I think it's um like the reason why I'm so big on Claire on on saying it's 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 more out of desperation versus hate is because yeah. when when you when you look when you have the the right framework for looking at the problem you can develop that like I was saying adequate solutions for it if you think it's hate then that's a whole different issue you're trying to solve as opposed to as opposed to, to solving the structural and systemic issues that are causing people to behave like this in the first place exactly you know and when you think of a city like san francisco like like the the rising and increasing ever increasing wealth inequality it's like things are going to get worse bro like things are going to get worse and people was wondering in the barrier why 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 since covid it's been so many car break-ins and stuff like that like bro people is desperate people as are hell bro people are struggling bro it's it i mean like desperation really breeds crime and, it, and it's a countrywide thing and and like and like I've come to learn and what you know as well is like whenever there is something bad economic in this in this country whenever something is enveloping it always hits black people first bro yeah. it always it always hits black people at the beginning you know covid it was killing black people the most because of because of structural and systemic issues bro like it, it all starts with us bro and it's just like it, it it really sucks to be a part of that group that no matter the issue is always gonna be affected the hardest mm-hmm. and and the first it's like you really can't escape like there's no problem that that happens in this country that you can escape and that you know you're you're not like that black other black people are suffering from the most it's very like depressing I'd say because no matter the issue like covid like you just mentioned that was an issue where you kind of feel like you you look at all the reasons and, and ways that people are getting covid and you think about like 
how it can how certain groups of people can afford to like not put those selves them put themselves in those places whereas like black people can't and they are just like unfortunately um what's the word i'm looking for here like they just end up being like products of their environment and it's just sad products of our environment bro and it's like it's it's um poverty in this country is such a it's such an interesting thing to talk about it's almost inescapable it's 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 inescapable bro and it's like i just wish people really understand what's going on bro i think that there's just been so much miseducation about this stuff even when when you go back to to the 80s like demonizing black people during all that ringing stuff all that nancy reagan like just say no yeah you know it's like when 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 they're the ones dumping money and i mean not dumping money dumping drugs in, into those communities and stuff like that literally destroying them which the mass public does not know about creating that fear of black people making them think that that we're super predators like like hillary clinton said all that stuff bro it's it's this deep man it really is it really is and I mean, um, dang, I lost my train of thought, but like, oh yeah, poverty and stuff. I remember in that conversation we had a few weeks ago, we just talked about like how difficult it is to escape poverty and like, you know, being poor, born in, into poverty really, really makes things a lot more, it makes it really difficult to, to, you know, die and to not die in poverty and stuff like that. So and thinking about how many black people are unfortunately are born into situations of poverty and also receive no systematic support to change their situation, it's just very, it's very sad because black people have proven time again uh, over the last couple hundred years that they are hardworking and they can escape any situation. But when you not only have the situation that you're in, but like people actively making things worse for you every single day of mm-hmm. your life, then it's like, what can you really do? Exactly, bro. And it's um, there's it's, it's just it's just so many forces, bro. And I do want to segue the conversation into how do you think did, did did going to Howard give you a greater understanding of these issues? Like, and 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 if it didn't, like, just describe what what your Howard experience just like taught you as a whole. I mean, coming to Howard, I think you see like different uh, groups of Black people, um, whether whether it be different groups from across the world, different groups from across the uh, United States. And in different like economic groups and stuff like that. So for me personally, I have never really interacted with like super wealthy black people um, because like they just were not in my community growing up. I got to meet you know people that were well off and stuff, but never anybody to the level that you kind of see at Howard sometimes. So like meeting those people, it's a breath of f- fresh air in a certain way because you you see what's possible. And it's encouraging to you to know that, like, you know, if you do, if you are able to work hard and if, you know, you have a lot of luck as a black person, a lot of luck and stuff that you can, you know, make it here one day, hopefully. But I think it's very eye opening to see um, how there can be an, an intersection between wealthy people. Uh, well, no, there can be a disconnect between um, groups, different economic groups of black people even at a at an HBCU. Um, but it, it's something that you, you, over my four years at Howard, I understood based off of the location of the university and how much it costs to go here. Mm-hmm. You are going to meet people who can pay for this school out of pocket, no problem. Yeah. You're going to meet people who are entitled on scholarship, who you know may be escaping poverty through their education, and they've worked hard to get here, and they've proven that they can be here. 
and then you meet people who are just trying to make it out, but they they may never because they have taken out you know a significant amount of money and loans to come here. So it, it's it's interesting to see where everybody's coming from, and it's you know I'm looking forward to seeing where everybody ends up because I'm somebody who I kind of feel like I'm in the middle of that a group of somebody who worked hard to get here, but is also in coming out of Howard and sort of a hole because of like how I grew up. So like for me, it's gonna be really critical to see how I'm able to like get myself out of this hole to then be able to build something with like the Howard education that I received. Yeah. So overall, I think it's like a, it's, a, it's a great place. I definitely would say like my my Howard experience is really built on the relationships with people that I've I've been able to build and like the connections I've been able to make. I think that's what really makes this place special. Um, but you just you see the the biggest thing here is you will see different every type of black person you can imagine and that's going to really open your eyes up to how like the world really is facts bro i i agree 100 percent, bro everything you said and i think that something that howard really gave me such a great understanding was was just black people across the diaspora bro like i had never had the opportunity to meet as many people as many black people from different states different countries these different parts of the world bro i think it's a real blessing bro. it really is like just being me being able to meet like you know a lot of caribbeans a lot of africans like black people from the south black people from the east coast like this is truly a unique experience bro and it's something that a lot of people don't get bro no and like you also see how a lot of the issues that you may have had growing up as a black person in your community are the same that somebody may have in a different country in a different state and and, and things like that for me that was something that it was really really not I don't say I don't want to say comforting, but it was it was nice to know that somebody understood what I was going through, mm-hmm. whether they were in a different country or or you know just in a different state here. So like, there is a bond that you build, knowing that you're somebody who you know you're a black person who has made it this far, made it to college, and then like now we we've graduated, knowing that you have you know reached this milestone. And that you're trying to not only better yourself, but better the lives of like the people around you, and also better like the the black community as a whole. It's like that is it's very encouraging to know that like it's a whole graduating class every single year that Howard's putting out of, of at least a couple hundred black people, if not a couple thousand, that are gonna make the world a better place. Hopefully, so like that's that's really progressive news, I think. Yeah, bro, it's it's that's real, bro. Cause I mean, I've met a lot of people here who have giving me hope for the future you know just not only just meeting people but allowing people to cultivate me into the person that I want to be and and somebody just like a leader and just somebody who wants to make change in the community bro like Howard has given me Howard really changed my life for real bro because for me um, I think like I was definitely in touch with with my blackness to some degree before coming here but Howard made me understand it at a completely different yeah, me too. And I can't even put into words how much it changed my life. And people who know me personally can definitely see it, but it, it feels different actually like living in it and seeing um, the habits I had before, who I was before, how I thought about things before, and just for it to, to be just just further evolved at an exponential level after, like, be, after being able to be here, bro. It's, it's crazy, bro. It really is. Like, it's... I mean, there's nothing like it. I feel like I'm. I'm really glad I went to HBCU. I will say that Facts. I was. You know, I really wanted to go to the University of Maryland College Park for like my whole. You know, ever since I decided to go to college, but 
coming to Howard is is probably been like one of the best decisions in my life. I agree, bro. So it, it's, you know, I would not go back and change a thing. And the thing is, bro, when we talk about Howard, like, I I feel like in the things we're saying, I think that black people period should just go to HBCUs, bro. Yeah. I, I really think that that's where we need to be at, bro. I think it's a, it's definitely a good space to like learn, um, well, to see black people in every light. And not even just very, from a classmate perspective, but like you see your professors in all kinds of um, like majors and stuff like that, that and, and professions that are black. Like I had never had a black teacher before I came to Howard. Are you serious? Yeah, like there was a there was a remember there was a black math teacher when I was in middle school, but I didn't have her. Like she was never my teacher. And then I had a substitute one day when I was in high school. He was a, a, a black man who had went to the rival high school in my county. He had went to, he had ended up going into the Air Force, became an aerospace engineer and worked in the Air Force and stuff like that. And he only substituted me for one day. I forgot his name, but I like went up to him at the end of the day and shook his hand. I was like, you are everything I want to be at the time because like I wanted to be an aerospace engineer and stuff. And like that just That's had cool, such man. a big impact on my life. And then like coming to Howard and you know, like 90% of your, your faculty is going to be black. To see, like, these people have reached, like, the top of their field is, like, really, really inspiring and motivational. And to know, like, they they have connections that are black, too. Like, they can connect you with people who are also at the top of their field that may not be working in academics um, to, like, help you figure out a path in this world. So that's something that's, like, truly inspiring and I think is good for every black person to see. Like, regardless of you have black teachers growing up if you're in Jack and Jill and all that kind of stuff like <laughs> you it, I think it's good that you see that kind of stuff in HBCU and it's like it's it's so pure you can go to a PWI and obviously have black professors but for the most part you're gonna it's gonna be feeling like the real world with like you're so outnumbered and you're so few and stuff but at a HBCU it's not like that it's like flipped on his head yeah bro cause when you at a when you at Howard these professors they can really be as unfiltered as they want like, yeah like it really it really doesn't matter like they they can say whatever they want to say bro and it really you like and, and don't make the students uncomfortable like they're yeah. not they're not thinking about uh how do we feel um like how how, how do like because when you're in a when you're in a classroom and it's like two black people in there and the professor might say something about blackness people gonna be like um the black people might they might get uncomfortable and they might start looking at each other but when exactly. it's all black people in the classroom bro everybody's every, like locked in like everybody's locked in you, you don't have to explain why racism is a thing or we all have a general understanding that that it is you know you, you there's a different level of understanding that you don't have to apply exactly it's like that that shared experience that everybody has uh connection with connection to so like you, you don't even have to waste time explaining stuff to people because like everybody understands racism everybody understands you know like the importance of slavery in american history and stuff like that it's very like just from an instructional standpoint it saves a lot of time um but it also just makes you a lot more comfortable in your classes and, and your like academic spaces to like also be able to open up and talk about your own experience and for like a professor to should to actually be honest and to you know give you a true breakdown of what you're learning about and like you're also going to have classes in HBCU that they would never teach at a PWI and they're going to be more black focused than classes that you would have at a PWI um I feel like a lot I feel like every class at Howard for the most part um 
and outside of like the, the STEM classes, obviously, yeah, they're gonna really take it um, and and teach you from a black perspective and talk about like a lot of specific issues that relate to black people. And I think that allows you to not only like understand different aspects of like uh, of like your education from a black black person's view. But it also helps you to like look at problems from a black person's view, like different problems that may be outside of your major, so you can really, really start to learn how to break things down and and help other black people that may be that may not have like the the luxury of having a college education. Exactly, man. That's one of the biggest things, bro. You know, being able to learn the things that we learn and then give it back to our community, bro. Yeah. Because I think that's what it's about, and that's a big reason why I have this podcast in order to. You know, talk about stuff like this and then, you know, post the clips on TikTok and Instagram and, yeah. and, and just and, and get the podcast out there so people can, if they might not listen to the whole thing, but at least they're going to hear some of the stuff that we're talking about so they can open their mind up to what's really out there exactly. and, and what they have the potential to learn and, and that is possible, bro, because it's all possible, man. All these all these books, man, all the things, our curriculum in college, like you can easily learn that stuff. You can learn a lot of this stuff on YouTube. You know, you can yeah. learn a lot of this stuff from. And there ain't nothing from I learned books. at Howard that you could not learn on um, online. It's just yeah. like how it's taught to you. That's the only difference. Exactly, part. exactly. That's and the it costs thing. a lot more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it costs a lot more, and I really want to expand on your point about like, bro. We, we got a black. We got a real black ass curriculum at Howard, bro. Yeah. Like, when I was at uh, Johns Hopkins last week, um, I was talking about how their. I was a lot of the political science uh, graduate students there. They, they hadn't really learned political science from a black perspective, so they didn't have the same type of um, type of like energy that I that I brought from. Because I I brought a real black perspective when, yeah. I, when I was talking, and it just showed me how how valuable my Howard education was. Because we from 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 as a political science student, my first class in political science we was talking about race bro exactly we talked about race in every class it was pretty much like a blend of african-american studies and political science bro because that's that's what it is bro and obviously there's two different subjects like i minor in african-american studies so a lot of the things that i know are going to bleed in, into 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 both curriculums but those we learn f- from such a black perspective that i feel like you you don't get that same experience going to a pwy and if you're black at a pwy you know it's it's nothing wrong with Shout that. Shout out to you. Go to the best school that is going to give you exactly uh, a big yeah. scholarship and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. This HBCU education ain't cheap. Yeah, but, it's not. But, like, you know, just consider it if you want to go. Consider it. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. If, like, if you if you get the funds for it, if you can make it happen, or if you even do it for, like, grad school or, or a doctor program, like, just just try it out. I think it, it, it helps everybody. Yeah, bro. I agree. Because for me, coming to Howard, I wasn't even really considering the HBCU before I, Howard was the only HBCU I applied to me too and I didn't really think I was gonna get in I was like I'm just gonna apply let's see what happens and I got in and I was like I hadn't really thought about going to HBCU but I wasn't against it No, it just wasn't on my radar it wasn't like, on my radar exactly like, like my no one in my college admissions never no one in my none of my college counselors in high school never advised me to go to an HBCU it was no. kind it was kind of just it uh, was really like I think for me especially in the like the community I grew up in it being like such a like a lower income area most a lot of like your your college counselors and stuff or like your high school counselors are encouraging you to like look at the best financial option whether that be like community college or a trade school or you know like a four-year college in a state somewhere where you're going to pay the least amount of tuition and then like you try to cover it with scholarships and stuff so like for me howard being a private college in washington dc was like okay well 
this is only going to work for you if you get a significant scholarship so you can pay for the majority of this cost. So, you know, like that's why I wasn't really on my radar because I was thinking about what school I can go to and not have any student loans. Yeah. And like for me, I had that option, but when I was, I got accepted to Howard and got a, you know, essentially almost a full ride, I was like, well, I think this is the going to work out then because like I'm going to be able to be around almost nothing but black people and you know like a black area of a city I'm gonna be you know like moderately far from home and I can really really like learn about myself and like I it was tough for me coming here honestly like I was homesick and stuff and it was it was tough to adjust that's crazy that's a crazy perspective being homesick when you're only an hour away yeah I mean from from, from, from like my perspective being me being from the west coast I was I was homesick because like um, Washington DC is much different than my little 700 person hometown so yeah. like that was why I was homesick, because there's just like so many more people here. Um, but also, it is like when you grow up in a like a, a mixed race area where it's really just like black and white, and then you're surrounded by other black people who are not only as smart as you but definitely smarter than you too. It's like it, you you may have like a, a really feeling. It's not imposter syndrome, but like you feel like, oh, am I good enough to be here? Mm-hmm. And then like. That can be a that's something that you figure out um, once you go to a HBCU because I feel like maybe when you go to a PWI PWI you may like stand out amongst the black people or something, but like you may not feel like you stand out amongst like other groups of people or or stuff like that. Yeah. But at Howard, like you really gotta find your place, and once you do, and that's when everything opens up for you, and you like can really appreciate the beauty of being at HBCU. Bro, I agree, bro. Howard was foundational in me finding myself as a person. Yeah. And not just finding and not just finding myself as a as a black person in white society because there's a there's a big difference, bro, because that's kind of how I looked at myself in high school. I was like, okay, like I'm I'm one of the standout black Exactly. Black one of the standout kids. black kids. Yeah, like, like that's that was the thing. And then when you come to a Howard or you come to a HBCU, like I got to find out how I'm going to stand out amongst all these incredible black people. Exactly. And mm-hmm. it's not a competitive, like, a, not really a competitive mm-hmm. thing or, like, you know, crabbing the barrel mentality. It's just, like, I got to find my way and yeah, all Yeah, bro, you got to find your way. And I think that just made me a better person, period. It, yeah. it didn't just make me a better black person. It made me a better person. And it, it helped me find out what do I like to do? What, what do I like to study? What What is special about me? How can I tap in to the gift that I see all these other Howard people have? Exactly. Exactly, and that's that's one of the biggest things that HBCU has taught me, and I feel like it teaches you. Period. It gives you a different level of confidence in yourself right? I, that absolutely. I that I think can't be replicated when you're at a, when you're at a white school and, and you're kind of just um you're just like a fly on the wall trying not to make a mess. There, yeah, you know? yeah. You just, you're just hanging out. You know, you just and I'm not and I'm not saying all black people do this at PWIs, at PWIs because I have plenty of black friends at PWIs who are very active in the community and their and their leading organizations, and I and I commend them for that. But that's not how it is for all of them. No, no, like, not at all. And like at Howard, obviously, like you don't gotta be somebody who is in an org doing all this kind of stuff. It's just like you really are gonna like find yourself as a black person at HBCU, and like we find ourselves as black people at Howard, and it's just it like you said, it gives you a different level of confidence. It's just it's you really can't explain it, like how it makes uh, like you just walk into a room and feel different. You just like, feel different, bro. Like like anything, for real. like you feel like you can accomplish anything, and I think that really stems from the fact that, like, when you get to Howard, you're gonna meet black people who are smarter than you. You're gonna meet black people who have more resources than you. You're gonna meet black people who, you know, never had to struggle. You're gonna meet black people who 
have survived worse things than you could have imagined and are here and doing really, really well. Mm-hmm. And like being able to appreciate all of those people, no matter where they come from and what they've been through, is going to like really allow you to find your own purpose and to, to discover like what it's going to take for you to succeed. So it's like then at, at that point when you go enter back into the world um, where you're, you know, you're bound to be in white spaces and stuff like that, you, you are almost unfazed because you know you can accomplish anything. Unfazed, bro. That's literally how I feel whenever I walk in a white space now. I, I walk in with the utmost confidence, yeah. bro. Like just like nobody can, nobody can touch me, bro. Cause, cause I, I know who I am exactly. and I know what I bring. I know, I know where I went to school. I know what I learned at school. I know what my school made me, you know, and I know what I, what I brought to my school. So it's like when I'm when I'm in those spaces, bro. It's like it's different. I feel like that's why a lot of these, you know, when you think about grad schools, a lot of these grad schools they be looking at HBCU, they be looking at HBCU students now. Yeah. Because they see that we bring something different to the table. Exactly. And it's like something you can't get everywhere at all. You it's, can't. It's like it's a really, really special type of experience, and it makes a really special person. Yeah, bro. Um. I, and it kind of makes me another thing I want to ask you. I was talking about Howard so much. How do you feel like you was able to to adjust being here after coming from a small town? How do you think you was able to adjust to the D.C. life and the Howard life, period? I mean, like I said earlier, I was pretty homesick. Uh, it was very hard for me to adjust at first because going from a really, small, really, really small town in a really rural area um, where you know everybody and every like everybody knows everybody and it's been that way for your whole life. You go to a city where you're interacting with new people every single day. That is a very different and almost scary feeling, because like you go in my hometown, like you go to the same corner store, you go to the same um, like church, you go to the same school and stuff. You see these people every single day, or most you know every single week or something mm-hmm. like that. So you you learn about them, you're comfortable with them, or you're uncomfortable with them, but you you know you interact with them enough to to know that how they're gonna act. Whereas, like, when you're in a city, you're surrounded by new people all the time. So, like, it's really hard to predict how somebody's going to act when you've never met them before. So, like, being in D.C. and being at uh, at a school that is larger than my hometown, you know, like, let alone the the whole city of D.C., it's like, how do I interact with all these new people? And then, School is crazy. School is larger than your hometown. That's different, bro. Exactly. So, it's like, um... It's just very, it was very eye-opening, and I had to learn basically like a new way of surviving because, like, I went to, I would go to school at home, like, you only hear bird. I mean, go to, go, go to sleep at night at home, you only hear, like, birds and, and insects and frogs and stuff. Like, you never hear talking, you don't hear sirens. Like, I would go to sleep, keep my doors unlocked at home because it's nobody going to do anything. There's no crime, there's not, well, I'm not going to say there's no crime, like, there's no violent crime and stuff like that. Nobody's gonna break into your house and steal anything. Whereas, like in DC, like yeah. kind of always gotta keep your head on a swivel. Like there's stuff happening. There's sirens all night. There's you know like people talking all hours at night. Like the city never sleeps. You're getting the notifications on your phone about like you know a robbery or a shooting or something like that. Not to say that how that Howard area is terrible. It's just it was not what I was used to. Yeah. So like I had to to really adjust. And learn how to be like a city boy, and, <laughs> a city boy. Yeah, but I kind of like took that head on in a way, because I remember the first like first week I go, oh that's what I was gonna say earlier. I didn't know anybody when I came here either. That was a big thing. I didn't know anybody from like 
Maryland. I didn't know anybody from my county. I later found out, like, somebody who also was from the Eastern Shore graduated um, this past May. Like, I didn't know her. So, coming here, I didn't know my, I didn't meet my roommate until the day of, like, moving in. So, it was just kind of like, this is going to be a, a journey on my own. I don't have anybody here that I can already, like, try to navigate with. So, like, I, I really had to take it. I took my journey head on. Um, I walked everywhere freshman year, mostly because I was broke. But, mm-hmm. like, I would, I would walk everywhere throughout the city. Like, I walked to the National Mall to go to the museums and stuff. I would walk around the community just to, like, see how stuff is and to, like, get a feel for it. And, you know, like, that obviously made my mom terrified. But, <laughs> um, but like, it was what I had to do to just figure out what the city is like. And then, like, for me personally, I played tennis, so I had the luxury of meeting a really great group of tennis people, like a, a, a native D.C. man who told me a lot of history about D.C. and introduced me to, a, like, a really large group of, of tennis players that were from, like, not only all around D.C., but, like, a lot of people were from different parts of the world and stuff, wow. different parts of the country. So I got to meet them and, and learn a lot about the city, and that made me a lot more comfortable with, like, this whole area and like now now I I get around fine I I feel like I can I don't know if I would live in DC after you know a couple of months and stuff but it's 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 navigating is no problem anymore and I and I've completely adjusted to where like I don't like to go home because it's so boring (laughs) but it's um yeah it was it was tough it's definitely tough I think it would be tough for anybody coming from a situation like mine because like Washington DC is a is a, a bustling city and then you know you're somewhere where you don't even have to lock your doors at night and you know you have the same group of friends your entire life because y'all are the only ones in that little small community yeah coming to Howard or coming to a large school like this is going to be really different and some people can't handle it some people are going to transfer I thought about it um mm-hmm. but I stuck it out and I'm glad I did and do you um when were you going to transfer I was going to transfer freshman year um, after freshman year, I was going to transfer. I put in an application to another school. I got accepted. Did not get nearly enough money to transfer. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like with COVID happening, I was just like, this probably isn't the best time to transfer anywhere. Um, but I had also considered transferring to the University of Maryland um, College Park because I didn't get in initially, but I really wanted to go. That was like my dream school. Mm-hmm. And I knew it would be much cheaper than Howard. And I was looking at it from a financial standpoint. Like yeah. if I can get, you know... Like, my GPA was high from my freshman year at Howard, so I was like, if I can get a, a nice scholarship from here on top of the ones that I already have, then, like, I could really, really, this could really, really work out, and I could, you know, still be in a, in a nice situation. But I stayed here, and it was, you know, a great decision. Man, that's crazy. If you had transferred, I would have never met you. Oh, we would have never met. I didn't meet you until last year at the... Um, at the, at the, the, the um, Black Man PDC. Yeah, yeah, the Black Man PDC. Which is, like, crazy to think about. Bro, I know, bro. It's it's super crazy, bro. Cause some some people as you, you just meet, you never um you, you feel like you should have you should have met them before. I feel yeah. like about like, all the Houston homies like like Use, Brock, Zach, all of them. Like I didn't know them mine, but all, all of them I didn't know them in like freshman year. It's um it's it's a blessing that that I really got to meet all you guys, bro. Yeah. And um I really wanted to even ask, you know, you said you was about to transfer. Um, how did like. It was just from an overall life perspective, how did COVID affect you and and so and if it, if you how did it affect you and anything that you wanted to do? I mean, like I came. Another thing I forgot to say, I forgot to mention, like how it was hard for me to adjust. I felt like I wanted to go to a school off of the Eastern Shore because I wanted to get away, and mm-hmm. I figured that like 
if I go to his school in the Eastern Shore of Maryland, I'll probably end up living there. I'll meet somebody there, and I'm going to be there for the rest of my life, which is, like, where most of my family has, has resided for generations. It's like, I don't want to be here. Um, I don't feel like my whole life is based on the Eastern Shore. It's like, coming to Howard, is like, this is a big city. I can go anywhere in the world after this. So, um, you know, with COVID and having to go home, and do a whole entire semester, entire year of school at home. I kind of felt like I was being put back in that place, and um, my whole mentality of school from how I was in high school to how I was my freshman year of college was completely different. High school, I really didn't do homework. Like I had good grades because um, I was, you know, smart and I did well on my tests and stuff like that. But like in college, I com- everything completely changed. I became like a study holic. Like I did all my homework. I would do my work like as soon as I got it, essentially. And my grades reflected that. So mm-hmm. I had, like, my best academic year ever my freshman year of college. Wow. Um, and I was, like, I really felt like this is easy. You know, like, people tell you that college is going to be hard and they try to scare you and stuff. But I was, like, I really thought I had figured it out and just have to. And then I had to be sent back home into the environment that I had worked so hard to escape. I was really nervous, like, how is this going to affect me? And then, like, coming from a, a lower-income area with, like, you know, a single mom, and you know like a, a younger sibling and stuff who's also you know was it coming into college age i was like well i gotta really still take care of myself now but also still be in school full time and try to balance it and for me it was like i was I completely i was not balancing it well at all like my grades were terrible sophomore year to the point where like i almost lost my scholarships wow um i wouldn't have failed out or anything but like i was only here yeah. on scholarships so like i wouldn't have been able to go if i had um lost them so like and then i was working so much that i really lost touch with how much how important school was and um i mean like looking back now with the amount of money i'll be making at my, my job and stuff like that a little, little bit of money was nothing and i was really about to like throw away a bag <laughs> for like you know a couple restaurant jobs and some quick fun right then and there but it was just like being in an environment but that's what I had to do to survive like I had to work four jobs at one time at one point for a couple of months because like I needed the money to save up um you said four jobs yeah damn I worked right. at I worked at three different restaurants and I worked at Dick's Sporting Goods well you was grinding grinding ain't the word bro like, it's then, really and, not and then like still <laughs> and then still like I did 12 credits each semester sophomore year, so mm-hmm. like, I was still behind with that. And then I failed a class two second semester, so like, damn, even farther behind. So, um, like with that, I was working so much because not like the money I was making from like one or two jobs was enough for me to like survive and take care of myself. But I knew, you know, like at Howard, we don't have housing after like our sophomore year. Really, it's like I gotta find, I gotta have money to find a place to stay because. There's nobody in my family that can pay for me to, you know, pay for my rent here and then also yeah. take care of themselves. So, it's like, that's got to be on me. So, a lot of it was, like, I'm working this much to bank money so I can have it for, like, the next year to, to you know, like, two years. And, but, like, working so much almost costing my scholarships, like I said, and it also, like, ruined my GPA. So, I was in, like, a really low point for a little while because, like, after the end, at the end of the second semester, I was like, damn, I don't know, you know like, what my grades going to be like. I don't know if this is going to make my, my GPA drop below a three. Like, they, you know, like, that's what I got to keep to have all my scholarships. And I was like, I ended up being right at a three. And then, like, I didn't have any internships lined up. So I was like, uh, what's going on? Like, I, you know, 
it's not looking too good for me. You got a bad GPA, no experience. Like, what am I gonna do to get a job in two more years? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just like in a bad position. Um, when I know, even like I'm thankful that I didn't die or anything from COVID because I know that was a, a really big problem for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But like in terms of, like I said, I had came to Howard. I came to Howard to get out of a, a situation I was in, and then I had to be like thrown back into that situation because of COVID. Like I. If I had lost my scholarships, I would not be here today. I would not be, you know, I would not have the job that I have. I would not, you know, be able to live the life that I live. So I began, I came really close to like losing it all. And like for me, I would have been really depressed um, about that because it's like you work so hard to get here and then like you lose it because of something that you really can't control. So like the, the whole pandemic for me is just like a hard moment of adversity that I'm glad I was able to get past, but it was just like tough. Like, just a, a tough period in my life and, a, and definitely the toughest moment of, like, my college career. Yeah. How did you overcome it? I just, I mean, really got lucky, I'm going to be honest. Like, you know, I, I made just enough money to, like, take care of myself for, like, that coming year. Um, I lucked out with my first internship because it was a, a, a couple that I had met when I was still in high school deciding when I was going to go to college. They had taken a, a liking to me when I was... Um, working at a grocery store and they like asked me where I was going to school like what I wanted to study and at the time that's I really was, how it would be them grocery stores the people you yeah, meet there they really be putting exactly, you on to stuff exactly so like they were they were a young couple and stuff and I told them like I was going to study political science like I was considering Howard and at the time like um, another school UNBC wait you were a poli sci major at first yeah, yeah for real yeah I'm a poli sci minor. I guess what I. I hey, bro! I did minor. not know that, bro. Yeah. Okay, that that makes sense. Why you know all that stuff? Bro. Yeah. That, 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 that really that really puts a lot of things <laughs> together. Okay. Yeah. I did um, not know that. Did we have classes together? What classes you have for intro to poli sci freshman year? I had a uh, Jovan McAllister. At, at, you were in that class? No, nah, I was. I had David Dixon. Nah. Okay. No, nah, I didn't have him. Um, Hate that motherfucker. Never sorry. <laughs> um. But yeah, like I met that I met that couple and they took a you know interest in me. But like I didn't see them for a year, for like two years. And then one random day, I'm working at like this this pizza shop that I've been working at um, sophomore year. And then like the wife comes in because like she has saw my name somewhere working here. And then she like asked me, she's like, "How I'm doing?" and stuff like you know, "How's college?" And I'm like, "You know, it's all right at this point." <laughs> um, but I was like, I changed my major to environmental science, and she's like, "Wow, that's so cool!" Like she worked at like a waterkeeping nonprofit on the Eastern Shore, um, so like she was you know really environmental stuff. And her husband worked at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, um, as like he was like a, a research researcher there yeah and he needed somebody to like help him with his research that he's doing and he was like i guess she's like i can ask him i can set it up and like you can go speak with him so like that probably like that next day i think i drove over to one point aquaculture ecology 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 laboratory met with him he showed me like some of the work he was doing he's like i can pay you like 13 hours like i don't care if you this is free like at that point i was making enough money for my jobs and but I just wanted the experience because like I know I need this on my resume. Like I need something to offset these terrible grades that I just got. Yeah. So I got that internship, did that, you know, worked on some research myself, got to to talk about it to some nonprofits. And Wait, some you were doing that sophomore year? Yeah, this is oh. after this is summer after sophomore year. Okay. So like I got to do that, and that like really really got me back on track in terms of like getting further internships and and meeting people and stuff. So like I'm I'm. T- eternally grateful to those two um, people for like that moment in my life 
because like I said, if I didn't have that internship, I would not have got any of the internships that I had prior because that research that I did there always comes up in the questions and I really think makes me stand out. Um, That's real, bro. It really, sometimes it'd be the people that you don't expect to be who really help you who really helps you get that one internship that helps you get a job in the future. Exactly. That, you can't even see the blessing like in the moment. Yeah, you really can't. And it's like like that. Like I said, that internship helped me get my um my second internship at a, a climate change nonprofit that focused on like poli- climate change policy in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, which then led to like us actually getting legislation passed. So it's like really progressive and stuff like that. And like it also helped me with my third internship at the university at the um, Maryland Department of the Environment. And then, um, yeah, it was just it was just like life changing. Then, like junior year, coming back off of COVID, it was like I know I gotta be in a different mode now. Like I, I took like nineteen credits first semester um, to like get myself back on track in terms of like credit wise. That was hard. And then I did uh, sixteen the next semester while doing an internship, and I've been doing like and then for senior year I had an internship the entire year. Uh, while also doing like 16 and 16 so it was just like graduate i graduated with 122 credits three, i think i, I think i had 22 yeah like three of them were transfer credits so like <laughs> you know barely barely squeezed by for real but that's all it takes all it takes but like i said that covid moment was tough for me it was it was really really tough and like i'm glad i made it past it but almost didn't so i'm i'm grateful that i did Bro, I'm glad you made it past it, bro. Like, I definitely, I definitely think that COVID was, COVID was an interesting time, bro. And for me, I started working a lot too during COVID, and sometimes yeah. that would interfere with the school a little bit. But you know, I had to balance it out, bro. And it was, um, it was, it was tough. But hey, man, we here today. Yeah, we here today, bro. And um, something else I wanted to ask you was, we was when we was talking earlier, when we was me and Isaiah was talking. Um, you said the word um, discipline. Yeah. What does what does that word mean to you in like in your life? Um, I think discipline is a as a great word just to like describe my life in general, because like for somebody like me who like grew up not really in a, a great situation, um, like lost my dad when I was like twelve, mm-hmm. and like really had to grow up fast, but never really had like a never had a father figure after that. Um, like you really gotta. Be, I think you have to be very disciplined in who you choose to, to, to model. And like, I never imprinted on anybody, in a way. But like, you you take you pick and choose what you what you can learn from somebody, especially like a man growing up, um, as like you know like as a as a young adult and stuff like that. Yeah. So like, I had discipline was something that I picked up from like a lot of the men that I chose to 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 follow and stuff like that. And I noticed that was like a common trait that they had. They're all very disciplined. So like for me, I knew that whether that was sports or, or academics, I was I was disciplined in sport. I was very disciplined in sports, but like academics, I could have been more disciplined. Like I, I mentioned earlier, I really didn't do my homework, which is true. Um, but like in terms of like my classes and stuff, I was very disciplined. I was always like a, a good student. Never had any problem. Like my teachers never had any problems out of me and stuff. Um, but when I went like my later two, my last two years of high school. I, like the discipline really shined out because that's when I started working. Um, I got a job at, at a grocery store and I would only work on weekends because I couldn't like it didn't make sense for me to drive to be only be able to work like two hours with like labor laws and stuff since I was under 18. So I, every weekend I only miss I miss maybe one, two weekends in two years um, working. 
Wow. Yeah, and at the time I was also still like kind of going to church. Um, so like it would be for me, my weekend would look like I work all day Saturday, um, and then Sunday I would go to church in the morning, then go to work like immediately after, and work till like from like two to eight, and then go to school the next day. Go to school the next day for the week, and then like I started playing at the beginning of high school. Well, no, the last two years, my junior year I was playing two sports. So like for um, in the in the winter and spring. I had to go to practice every single day after school and mm-hmm. you know then go to work then have to do my homework and stuff and then um then go to work on in church on the weekend and then my senior year i played three sports so it was the whole year was practice every single day and then work on the weekends um like stop going to church so i would work more but like at that point i was applying to college i'm applying to scholarships and stuff i was president of my class so like the, all the stuff that came with that and i was also like the the board representative for my school at the the um board education board of education so like it was it was a lot to balance i didn't have a car i was borrowing my grandma i was using my grandma's car to like get back and forth and stuff but i was also like riding the bus when i had to mm-hmm. um i did not have time for a girlfriend I did not have time for partying i did not have time for really nothing fun because like in my mind i I was disciplined because I'm like, this is the stuff that I have to do to get to the next level, which is college. And it's yeah. like, I'm only going to get out of the situation I'm in now if I go to college. So like, I, that level of discipline for me was like top notch. Like it, it really will, it probably will never, it, I hope it doesn't have to get to that level in the future, you know, but mm-hmm. I hope my life will be easier in that. But like, I, that was the most disciplined I've ever been because like I said, I didn't have time for anything. Every, every single day it was like, you go you in school you got to do well in school you go home you go practice for a sport afterwards you come home still you know i might have a little bit of homework to do and i might push off to the next day and the weekend i gotta work to make a little bit of money to like fund my life yeah um and like it, it did it did pay off like the discipline played off because i got to howard um got a, a very nice scholarship from them and then i also got a very very nice scholarship um from like an organization on eastern shore um, so like when I managed to, I, I've stayed in contact with them over the four, past four years. Cause like, I'm very grateful for that. Cause like that, that amount of money really changed my life. But like that discipline transition to my, my freshman year. Um, cause like I said, that was my best academic year ever. Like I didn't, I didn't party. I didn't do anything. Like I was here to literally learn and, and like, you know, that's probably why I never saw you. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, like, you know, I, we you like I said like we said we met like junior year which is when I was like outside a little bit but freshman year you can ask a mom you can ask anybody I didn't do nothing but <laughs> and like maybe walk around the community because I was trying to learn about that and go to museums and stuff but no I was strictly a school boy my boy was tucked off for real I was really tucked off um but yeah well discipline like even even during COVID like I might not have been as disciplined with my work because I was literally like I think it was like a, a, a tired issue. I was really stressed and stuff, but I was very disciplined with my jobs. Um, did really well with that and was able like to save the money up. And then I was disciplined junior year with like my internships and um, my classes as well. And this past year, like the discipline has kind of wavered off because um, it's senior year, but still like I. I remain disciplined in my job applications to, you know, make sure I had a job before I graduated and, and had something to, to look forward to afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I think like discipline, like I said, it is a really a, a word that sums up my life because without discipline, I would not be here. And discipline is going to be something that is going to have to be critical for me 
you know, the next decade to make sure I'm in a position that I want to be in. Hey, hey, that's that's real, bro. And that's really the answer that I expected from you, bro. Just because me knowing you, just knowing just knowing who you are as a person, I can tell that discipline plays a big role in your life. Can For me, it plays a massive role for me, too. Like, just, it's, you, it's funny you said that all the men in your life, they, they had everything that, that united them was, was a trait of discipline. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that is so essential to, to being a man and just being a human, period. I feel like you can go so far if you just have the discipline and you and you do the things that you don't want to do for exactly. the greater good. Like That's really what it's about, bro. Just being able to, to stand on your principles, stand on, just stand, just stand for something and then also do the work and apply that in your life, bro. Like It take you a long way, bro. It really will. Like, I mean, hard, like, I know we talk about a lot of social economic stuff and poverty and everything, but discipline and hard work can really take you really far if you obviously not held back by society and stuff. Um, <laughs> but it, it can. Yeah, it can. And, and, and you know, d- despite all the, all the systemic issues that, that, that black people undergo, like, I, I still think those are things that we can strive for, you know, like having greater discipline and, and, um, and just, just striving for greatness, period, you know, striving to, to be the best that we can be, you know, because just as just as just from a human perspective, you know, like that that's how you that's how you change communities, that's how you shift people, you know, yeah. when you when you adopt those those traits of just of just putting your head down and just and just grinding, bro. Like it's um it, it's it's a powerful thing, and and when there's real purpose behind it, bro, like it it takes you to a different level, bro. Definitely, definitely, it's like I don't know, it's pretty transformative. Like it really is, bro, and um. You know, before I end this podcast, like, I want to ask you, I haven't done this before on a podcast, but I, I want to ask, like, what's something about you that people don't know? Um, it's just, it's just something, something cool about this, something that you like that people don't. Oh, uh, something, don't I guess, like, that people don't really know, I would say, is, like, I'm really not, like, a, a very social person, um, and that make. People, some people may know that. Like maybe the people like that are really close to me may know that. And it's not that I don't like people or anything. It's just like I've really over the past couple of years of my life, I've been alone. Um, or like like I remember we talked about like I was we would be living with our grandmother and stuff. Yeah. And it's like you, you in there, but you really by yourself. Yeah, right? yeah, you are. So yeah. like uh, I really like been conditioned to being by myself, and I think you don't really get that. Most people don't get that until like after college or something when they really move out on their own and stuff like for me that was like my last two to three years of high school and then like a part of college and stuff and like yeah I may have roommates and everything but like in terms of me I'm completely independent so I am I feel like I I am um, I'm not like a super super social person because I've learned how to like just be by myself and do things that like make me happy and been able and I've been able to like just be okay doing those things by myself Mm -hmm. so like I can go do something and you know I may ask people if they want to do it with me but if they say no that really don't make a difference to me like I'm still going to do it right Um, so I think that's something that people may not really know about me because like it may it may seem like I really definitely value my friends and the people I care about yeah I know exactly what you mean yeah but it's like you know if I was to if I was to end up getting a job in the middle of nowhere and I was living by myself, I think I would do just fine, just fine and stuff. Like, it, it's really just, it feels like it's just surviving. And I think I survived by myself pretty well. Hey, hey that's, that's real, bro. Um, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people will think that 
I'm a very social person as well. And and I am. I mean, every podcast that I've been recording lately has been like two hours plus. So yeah. I, I can I can I know how to talk to people, but that I do really value my alone time a lot. And and you know, like being able to relate about with being living with a grandparent, like there are a lot of times where where when you're alone, you know, you're not you're not really talking to nobody and the pandemic kinda gave me a glimpse of what it was like to kinda like live alone yeah not not being around uh people all the time especially because like my sister goes to school in, in in the south so they wasn't really tripping about covid like that yeah so um she she was able to go back to school during during covid but for me i was I, howard they ain't no, they i was not playing no games howard wasn't playing no games with that bro so uh there was a lot of times when i was kind of just by myself for uh aside from aside from my uncles used to pull up but i um i really grew to be somebody who I don't really need others to to um sustain myself. Yeah. I, I, I can I, I can I, I'm I'm gonna work. Like I have things I like to do on my own. I really don't even like to call people like that. I really I don't call nobody. <laughs> bro, bro, I be thinking something's wrong with me sometimes, bro, but I really I really don't like calling people, bro, because I I if I'm not I'm not talking to somebody. I'm probably being productive in some way. I'm either going to the gym, like yeah. I'm recording a podcast, I'm reading, I'm I'm usually doing something else, you know. And I think like, I think for me, it's all the things that I mentioned earlier, um, just now, but it's also kind of like a, a like a product of my environment thing. Yeah. Like like I mentioned earlier, like I, my dad died pretty young in my life, and then like recently, like my my grandma, she passed a couple of months ago. So like stuff like that. Yeah. Those were the rest my, in peace. Thank you. Like my grandma was somebody who I've like really, really talked to a lot mm-hmm. and spent a lot of time with. But like now that she's not here, it's kind of like a a detachment from from the rest of your life in a way. So it's kind of like she was the person who you know would call me every once in a while, or I would almost never call her. And it's not because I didn't love her or anything or didn't want to talk to her, but I just know the per when I would come home, I sit talk to my grandma for hours. That's literally how yeah. I do my grandma. Like my grandma can talk. Bro. Yeah. Like, so like it would be that connection that like unfortunately is no longer here. So like that that was really the last person for Dickie. Really the last person for me that was like, oh, you know, I can I really enjoy their company to the point where, like I'll sit and talk to them for hours, and I kind of like really would like I value being around them and stuff like mm-hmm. now and like no disrespect to any of my other family members but it's kind of just like you know I see them when I see them and I talk to them when I talk to them yeah. like I don't need to be around them and it's there there's no like burning desire to be around them as well um so like this this it's not I wouldn't call it antisocial but lack of like social ability that I have now is just really just kind of like partly because I've, I've the, like the COVID stuff and me being independent but also kind of like that one person who I really really would talk to for so long is like no longer here yeah. so you just kind of adapt at that point and you just go go about life hey bro that's that's real bro cause you know it's we all we all have those family members who we talk to more than others like who like I talk to my uncle a lot like I'll be talking to him about like black people just like it is everything black people star wars all that stuff like yeah. for hours and hours and hours and you know it's you know and you don't you don't have that connection i wouldn't say connection but just you don't you don't have the same things to talk about with everybody else in your family so yeah. i definitely feel that bro like it's real just like i mean like a lot of stuff we talked about today is knowledge um that like i learned from my grandma like the first when we first started off i was telling you like the story she told me like her experiences growing up yeah um like that's the kind of stuff that 
we can no longer have those conversations. So like that is kind of severed from me and I only have what she shared with me in the past. So like, that's it. And, you mm-hmm. know, you just kind of go off of that and there's no really going to be no more, you know, like there are going to be no more new conversations to learn and, and talk about. So just kind of not move on, but you know, you just got to keep on. Hey man, you carrying her legacy on through this podcast right here, man. Yeah, and and it's going, it's going to be here forever, man. This, this, this podcast ain't going nowhere, bro. So all the game that that she taught you, a lot of people is going to learn from this, bro. So it's real, bro. Yeah. Um, there's something else I wanted to ask. Something I wanted to ask way earlier in the podcast. I wanted to ask what you said the underground road. What, what does it, the the specific stop that is in Eastern Shore, Maryland. What does it look like? Okay, so it's like. Um, in Preston, Maryland, it's a little bit outside of, I guess, like the town limits. Um, and there's a, a mill there, an old, like, man, it might be like a sawmill or like a, a, a flour mill or something. Um, and then, like, there's a little creek behind it, I think, and like another building. I mean, it's, you know, it kind of looks, it's kind of wooded off. And I'm sure it looked different, you know, 150 years ago when there were no other houses and stuff around. Yeah. Um, but like it, it just tells and there's like a plaque there and it talks about how like this is a part of the underground railroad because like obviously there was like a lot of slavery in the area with um it being a like a large agricultural area um so I just obviously like I don't know I hope everybody knows that it's not a literal railroad um but it just looks like a, a spot where like oh if there were abolitionists living or operating in that mill then it might be somewhere where they like people could go and stay secretly and stuff and then like follow that route because uh it's just like a it's like a very unsuspecting place they like restored it and stuff so it looks nice now but yeah but they wasn't thinking nobody they wasn't thinking nothing was happening there no no and that's so crazy bro like a lot of those those like a, just a random mill no one was thinking that they was housing enslaved people up in there bro it's crazy bro yeah it's a it's an interesting little spot. That's really dope. Yeah, we gonna have to go there, bro. I wanna I wanna see that stuff. Bro. There's like so many spots like that on the Eastern Shore, but I mean, like it makes sense. It's it's part of the South, um, part of like a lot of Black history there. Uh, but yeah, there's so many different points and places. Like the Harry Tubman Museum is really nice. Um, it's out in the cut though. For real? Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. is it like a house or just like a building? No, it's like a whole museum. Like they they built a really really nice museum for it. Like, wow. It's like on a nice piece of land and stuff. It just takes this like far out in Dorchester County, so like you really got to go out there where it's like really no service and stuff. So damn, they <laughs> have to make people go super far for the, for the yeah, museum. Yeah, is there a Frederick Douglass museum out there too? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. I think they just like show you where his birthplace is. Like you can find that on a map. Okay. Um, but I don't think there's a museum. Like I said, there's a statue in front of the Easton Courthouse. Of him like speaking and stuff. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You, you said the statue. Um, was there? Um, have you been in his house in Southeast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't been either, but I definitely want to go, bro. His um, he used to live over there, like back when he was living in D.C., bro. It's, I don't know what it looked like, but it, it's pretty cool to just think about all, all these historical figures who was literally, who was literally here. Yeah, and I think like that's something you really see on the East Coast, like. For black history. That's why I love the East Coast so much, bro. I feel so connected, bro. Yeah. That's why I don't want to leave. Because, like, stuff, like, moved over, like, over the course of American history. But, like, most of it, like, started here. And, mm-hmm. like, you know, transitioned up and down the coast. And, like, 
it developed there and then, and then like spread to the west coast but like there's just so much here like it's it starts off here bro i mean it's yeah. literally this literally the, the black american homeland you know? yeah because like, like the, the south exactly like the southeast is really like where niggas was really at yeah like, like for real like it's where we was at bro yeah but it's a nice cool spot it's a cool place yeah bro, i'm definitely gonna have to check it out bro and um kind of alluding to our conversation before the podcast like i need to ask you because you you a big Star Wars fan, just that's like me. What is your favorite Star Wars movie? Uh, see, I really like the prequels for more than like the. Um, you seem like a prequels nigga. Yeah, cause I mean, I just I can't do that. Uh, you know, like bad. It's not even CGI at that point. Like all that stuff. I just I, just, I know it's the seventies or whatever. Bro, that that's what makes it feel special. I though. Just, what you I mean? can't do it, bro. Like I just hey, I don't watch old movies because of that reason. Like I'm a huge CGI person. Like I need it to be everything, all this scientific stuff to look as cool as possible. So that's why I like the prequels. Um, I don't think I really have a particular favorite movie. I probably just like both the prequels a lot. Okay, or is it, or is it three? Three. Like, yeah. yeah, I like the three prequels. Um, if yeah. I was gonna say like if you're a prequels fan, I figure usually prequels fans' favorite. I like I mean I like all of them, but usually it's like Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, uh, it probably is Revenge of the Sith, for real. Cause I don't know, it's just something for me. Like Anakin Skywalker is cause yeah, his no nah, his his transformation. His transformation. It's just sorry. It's crazy to think about like if. If they had, but he had not raised the Padawan to knighthood, so it's like, how could he be a master? But at the same time, like, if they had just promoted him to master, they know he had anger issues and stuff. Bro, just, 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 just let do him, it. Just do it. Just do it. And like none of that stuff. Turned, but I think it's, it's. I think I like Star Wars because it really is like a good representation of society. Facts. That's why I be telling people, bro. It really is. Yeah, because like, represents society so much. Because like the Empire, you cannot say that's not the United States. <laughs> Like, literally, just, like, all the corruption and, and you know, like, the colonialism and stuff. Dark Lord um, ruling Dark over Dark Lord, exactly. Like, that stuff is... See, super weapons. Exactly. It's, like, it's the same thing. And, like, how the Jedi really just, like, blindly follow the orders of the Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't, so, you know, some of them, are, you know, are self-aware. Some of them are And, like, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's really cool to think about. I mean, like, from... Me from a scientific perspective, I really like the the technology and stuff that he used. I think it's yeah, very cool. Like, like the ideas, space travel. Um, but like I know that's not a lot, a lot of that stuff is either not possible or like far, far, far in the future. Yeah, far, far away. Um, in a galaxy yeah, far, far away. Exactly. But <laughs> like it's really cool. I'm a huge sci-fi guy. Like Transformers is my favorite series. Uh, like of like sci-fi stuff. So. I need to get into Transformers, bro. I haven't really people might might play me for this, but I haven't really watched any of them for. Real. I mean, like. Some people really hate the movies. I'm not gonna lie. I love the movies because I love Transformers. Are they necessarily good movies? <laughs> That's debatable. <laughs> but you know, are they cool because it's giant robots fighting and 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 stuff like that? Yes. <laughs> I mean, for me, like I love the third movie, um, Transformers: Dark of the Moon. I think it has a very complex story and a very complex character set with um, Optimus Prime and then Sentinel Prime. His, the prime before him, which is he was the leader of the Autobots. Like Optimus revives him, and then um, you know, like in this case, Optimus has been leading the Autobots for probably uh, millennia. But Optimus, like he honored, he is he respects Sentinel so much that he like offers um, 
you know, like leadership and command of the Autobots back to Sentinel within like a day of reviving him. So mm. I thought, to me, is like the ultimate respect and like ultimate form of honor. Because he can lead them for, for, for over a thousand years. For over a thousand years, like, you know, through battle after battle, across planet, across planet, like that type of... And I look at, I try to compare like sci-fi movies, just movies that I like to like my real life and values Same. that I can have. Do that with Star Wars all the time. Yeah, and like, you know, just I, I always dream of having that level of respect for somebody or somebody having that level of respect for me where it's like, you know, I understand all, everything that I've done, but like I like trust you that much, respect you that much to like turn over command to you. But you know, Sentinel betrays him, he betrays the Autobots in that movie, but he's such a complex character um, in like, just the story itself is is very very good and i think like from a from a combat perspective i like it because like you see in the in the, in the michael bay transformer movies optimus prime is like a very skilled fighter and um and though he gets beat up and like even killed in some you can argue that he dies and is is takes such a beating because he's always trying to protect humans whereas like sentinel prime is not only like another prime who is like as skilled as you can be in like the Transformers world in terms of combat, but like a true fair match for Optimus. Not even just not even a fair match, like a little bit better. Um, so like the fight scene because like, like he like the o, he like the OG yeah he, exactly. he, like, he like Optimus OG exactly um, he like he taught Optimus okay like essentially that's that's why that's why he revived him so quickly after he came back yeah so like. You know, the, I feel like the fight scenes are just very complex, and the dialogue as well between the Transformers in that movie is like in, incredible. Um, I'm this is gonna be weird to people that are listening, but like I have this scene memorized. The scene where Optimus and Sentinel they're in Africa, and they're driving through, and then I'm gonna quote it word for word. Sentinel says, "So majestic and peaceful this planet, unlike the final days of Cybertron." Optimus then says. I wonder what might have been if you had fought the final battle instead of me. Sentinel then says, Never mourn the past, young warrior. Thanks to you, our race survives. Optimus then says, You were our leader, Sentinel. It is your right to lead us again. And this is the moment I'm referring to where Optimus gives, he offers control of the Autobots back to Sentinel. Then Sentinel says, In a world I do not know, I'm no longer your teacher, Optimus. You are mine. Like that. Ooh. Oh, that sounds ooh. deep. I'm gonna have to start watching that. That that, that sounds if like you don't that's watch rip. any scene of Transformers. Watch that one. You'll understand Transformers so much better. They're incredibly complex. I hate that they don't give them more dialogue moments like that. I love the fight scenes, but that moment right there is peak cinema to me. That like like I said that, and Optimus gets down on one knee and gives him the great matrix of leadership. It was like. Like y'all, obviously y'all can see that. That probably give you chills down your spine. I already know it. Does. Chills ain't the word. <laughs> I already know, bro. bro. I was like, it's it's a it's an amazing scene, um, but it's just it's it's I don't know. And then uh, another scene in that movie that I really like is um, after Sentinel betrays the Autobots, Optimus confronts him and they're fighting and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Sentinel is about to kill him, but he you know he can't kill him because this is his essentially like in Star Wars terms like his Padawan and yeah. he won't kill him because he, he still respect he has a level of respect for him it's for Optimus yeah for Optimus yeah. Um, but Sentinel has bested him in combat and stuff and he's like um, how does this scene go he's like he basically Sentinel basically is like you know the humans we were God. he was like we were gods on Cybertron and here they call us machines and then the whole point of Sentinel's plan is to like bring Cybertron here with like a teleportation device 
Cybertron is the Transformers home world which has been you know destroyed by war mm-hmm. and then enslaved the human race to rebuild their planet he's like let the human serve us or perish you're lucky I and he says you're lucky I didn't kill you in time you'll see so it's it's um, Sentinel Prime is like voiced by Leonard Nimoy who plays Spock on oh, Star Trek that, oh, oh that's dope perfect, oh, perfect, he, oh yeah, yeah perfect, definitely, perfect casting I, I love I love Star Trek too my uncle put me onto the original series so I'm definitely tapped in with that too and I think that was like his last role before he died I was really like, he, he really went out like crazy with that he went out like a G yeah it's, it's Transformers I mean like all, the first three Transformers movies for me are, are incredible but like Transformers three is the next le- is next level. Watch them all in order, and then watch Transformers three, and then like tell me what you think. Cause how many are there? With the one that just released, there are seven Transformers movies. I believe the first three are the only you really need to watch. Um, the fourth one's okay. The fifth one, all over the place. The the Bumblebee movie is pretty good, and then the one that just came out of um, Rise of the Beasts is like all right. I feel like. Okay. Different um, vibe than the first three Michael Bay movies, but good. When did they come out? Like Transformers nineties or Transformers one came out in two thousand seven. Okay, damn. Transformers two, um, uh, what is that? Revenge of the Fallen came out in two thousand nine. Transformers three, Dark of the Moon came out in two thousand eleven. Transformers four, Age of Extinction, Age of Extinction came out in two thousand fourteen. Transformers five, um, the last, I think it's the last night came out um in 2017 Bumblebee came out in like 2019 2018 something like that and then uh and then this past Transformers movie just came out like a couple of days ago actually uh, actually one week ago today so cool stuff okay I'm gonna check that out bro and you you saying that scene word for word just like uh, people if you don't know me personally you might you know you might, you're not gonna notice but like when I <laughs> I literally see like how I look at through the world like in the back of my head it's like Star Wars like yeah. like whenever something happens like I might think if there's a Star Wars quote that's applicable to something that's going on in my life I'm gonna probably think of it through Star Wars like if I say to somebody like just like a, like a fire quote like how you was describing like yo um, your, your favorite scene the scene that you memorized I really for me that's like that's like the Empire Strikes Back just thinking of, thinking of the scenes thinking of the dialogue in those movies bro like Memorize it word for word. I memorize it word for word. I want, and this is how you know I'm a really a real weirdo because like when I was in high school, I used to like go in one of my my favorite teachers' um, uh, classroom during my lunch and like watch Transformers videos, to, like memorize the quotes um, <laughs> while I was eating lunch. And like, see, I'm so thankful for her for letting me sit in there because she's probably like, this nigga is weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I was just watching them on and on and on because like I I will take like real stuff out of these these scenes and stuff, and that particular scene is like my one of my favorites because of like like I said that level of respect that you have um, for some like for your superior like your leader or or like your elder like that's something for me I would love to have like a moment with that a moment like that with like my my son or my child where like they respect me that that much or something where like they yeah they. Yeah, we have a, a, a something like that happen. No, nah, bro, that's a, that's what I feel like just for a man period, like that ultimate level of respect, like respect yeah. me so much for us, bro. Like, yeah, for someone to you know show show you that same respect and it just goes both ways, it's mutual, bro. Like it's hard to it's hard to be able to replace that feeling, bro. Definitely, definitely. And but like once you find it, it's this I don't know, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah, it truly is, man. But 
Hey, this was a great episode. To to this date, this is the longest episode I've ever recorded. And and that says a lot because usually like you 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 beat the record by by three minutes. Yeah. So this has been uh, usually my podcast be long, bro. But this is definitely one I enjoyed, bro. Like I can definitely tell you had a lot to say, bro. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been waiting to do this for a minute now. Um. Definitely like just a great natural conversation like that conversation we had a couple of weeks ago. I mean, that's how um, we do it over here on the Black Letters, man. Feel it. That's, that's what we do, man. It's tough. I'm I'm honored. Hey, honored. Yes. Hey, hey, I appreciate that, bro. Hey. I hope y'all enjoyed the episode, man. As long as we always say, as long as y'all show love, we'll stay consistent. Black Lotus out, Josiah out, we gone.